So people are using evolutionary thinking and models to inform what we do for human health too. Wow. Yeah. So it's not just like a bunch of people sitting around talking about what Darwin thought. It's actually like this stuff's relevant to health in many ways. Like people use evolution to understand where diseases come from. And welcome to Tomversations. That's T H O M Versations, where the H makes all the difference. It's a podcast about stories, experiences, and knowledge. How the H are you? No, I mean it. How are you doing? You know, it's life can be difficult sometimes. Not like there's a user's manual. Hope things are going smooth for you right now. Really do. Today on this conversation, you'll hear from Dr. Jeremiah Bushwell. Who's that guy? He's an evolutionary biologist at Washington State University. He's a very good friend of mine. And we'll get into how evolution works, which is, you know, complicated. <laughs> we'll talk about the changes in species, why they happen sometimes. And we'll also get into uh, a little bit into the whole higher education thing. Talk about some issues about teaching students and how they are really good at keeping science and ideas moving forward. Yay, students. So I learned so much from him. It's a good talk. Uh, I think you will enjoy it. But what have I been up to? Um, you know, I did something new. I went on a four-day silent retreat put on by the Palouse Mindfulness. Um, and there was a conversation on mindfulness with Dr. Jamie Derrick that was back in April. So uh, you might want to check that out if you haven't yet. But uh, yeah, the retreat uh, was pretty great. Uh, no phone. There's no TV, no radio, or no news of any kind. Oh, kind of blissful. Yeah. Anyway, I went with my wife, and there are about uh, 40 plus people at the retreat. There was a lot of meditation, lots of meditating. And I do meditate. I'm about uh, 10 minutes a day or so, but um, the first group session was about 20 minutes, so about twice what I normally do. So. Well, there was a bit of a learning curve in that, but um, I got used to it fairly quickly. And oh, we are also doing something called noble silence. You ever heard of this? But this is where you don't speak unless it's necessary. Um, you don't look others in the eye, which is really difficult, by the way. Uh, there's no body gestures, uh, no real acknowledgement of other people, but you're still moving about in a courteous manner. You just... Uh, being really mindful about what's going on and you're trying to be quiet uh, as you can possibly be. You know, uh, don't uh, clomp around on the stairs or slam doors. Try to eat very quietly. Right. And um, I have to say that uh, it was kind of difficult at first, you know, as you adjust to it. But I, I really came to like it a lot. Um, and there was a, just this great feeling of Quiet contemplation, which you never get in life, you know, especially days of it. Um, so it was um, really rather nice. And I suggest it for everyone. I suggest it to you. You can go out and do some kind of silent retreat uh, and get away from everything is uh, quite nice. It's quite nice. And uh, I look forward to doing it again. And uh, Elise and I are already making plans to do it again next year. Uh, if there's another one, and um, from all um, points are saying yes, there will be another one next year, so uh, we plan to be there. 
And you know, there's uh, one thing that I contemplate, and that's beer. <laughs> uh, how was that for a transition? Not bad, right? Contemplation, mindfulness, beer. And of course, the beer of choice is Moscow Brewing Company. And that's located right here in Moscow, Idaho, and it's in the good old United States of America. And they are committed, they really are, to creating the highest quality ales. And they make that ale from ingredients found throughout the Inland Northwest, locally grown grains and hops. And the quality of flavor and the consistency, it just, it leaves you wanting more. So stop in today, enjoy a selection of ales featuring flavorful IPAs, rich stouts, everything in between. Check out Moscow Brewing Company on Facebook and at Moscow Brewing on Instagram. Mm-mm, beer, beer, beer. Uh, Jeremiah and I have a couple of beers on this podcast, come to think of it. And and I want one right now. I, It's like 7 o'clock in the morning on a work day. And I want a beer. I want a breakfast beer. Stupid work getting in the way of fun. Ah, ah what, what, whatever. Moving on. Let's, uh, let's talk to Jeremiah Bush about evolution and biology. All right, dude. Um... <laughs> Let's see how this goes. So, um, uh, thanks for coming in to Conversations. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and would you mind uh, introducing yourself? I'm Jeremiah Bush. I'm a friend of Tom Cocaine's, a local biologist here on the Palouse, and just happy to be here and chat with you. So, this should be a fun ride. Yeah, but uh, specifically, you are an evolutionary biologist. That's right. Yeah, I spend a lot of time studying change and how uh, organisms adapt to their environments and over time. So that's something I kind of think a lot about. I teach classes in that. Um, Right now, I'm teaching a class on how you use kind of basic approaches to understand why organisms change. So it's something I spend a lot of time on, something I read a lot about, and just fun. So and so, what is evolution? Yeah, uh, I guess I think I, I think it is just change over time in a in a population, right? So you know, for a good example, might be like I don't know the ancestors that eventually led to humans, right? There's a pretty spotty fossil record, but there are fossils out there of things that we think are, are our ancestors, right? And so you can see that our cranial capacity has changed like in the last million years. It's increased a lot. And so if you think about just change over time, that's one that's evident in the fossil record. When you say cranial capacity, you mean our brains. Yeah, are brain size. But, but but it's not really, it's the capacity for a bigger brain. Yeah, right. So the, I think it's just like the volume that would contain the brain. That That volume has increased a large amount in the last, say, million years in what people think is the lineage leading to humans. And so that's just one example, right? People care a lot about humans. Um, I don't so much, but because uh, <laughs> I think there's so many other cool evolutionary events happening that you can kind of study in more depth than other organisms. So, you know, um, wow. Like you could, you know, look at tens of thousands of years of evolution in a bacterial population, for instance. You can do that in the lab, right? Make them adapt and change uh, over time in response to these pressures. So I think as scientists, we're just, we just want to know how that works so we can understand our past. But I think we also want to know how that stuff works on a really detailed level so that we can make predictions, you know, about the future. And I think um, that's what makes it fun. A lot of people, I think, say like, 
oh, you're an evolutionary biologist. Isn't that just survival of the fittest, you know? Yeah. Or, oh, it's simple, right? But mm-hmm. uh, it turns out that's just one way that uh, populations change. And there's all these other ways that don't make a lot of sense until you really get into the details. So um, it just gives you a lot of a lot of fun to think about. Um, so that's how I got into it, actually. I guess, I guess um, I've always been kind of interested in um, historical sciences. I think when I was younger, I wanted to be like an astrophysicist because I thought it was really cool to think about how, you know, um, universes have, have changed or how the galaxy has evolved or how the solar system formed. And then I was like, well, maybe I'll do anthropology. And I read some stuff on human evolution. And then I just realized that, well, you, you can do a hell of a lot more in other organisms, right? Like you can make plants mate with whoever you want and, um, make, see what happens, see what happens, right? You can, you can do all this stuff that you just can't do in other, in other groups. So, so you decided yeah. you thought that hey biology is the way to go because you can actually see you have evidence right in front of you you can yeah. do an experiment and voila yeah I mean I guess I don't know if it was that rational even like uh, if you you know why do people do what they do you know I think right now if I, if you ask me why I do evolution it would be a kind of like a semi rational answer fairly well thought out but I think when I was starting to do biology I think I just like being outside oh yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. I, I just like being outside and just looking at nature and um, just enjoying it. And then I think if you spend enough time outside, you start paying attention to things. Right. And um, that could be anything. Like for some people who like to surf, they might just go to a beach and watch people surf. And then who knows where it goes. But for me, it was just spending time outside. And then eventually I saw people doing science and I thought, wow, you can you can do this. You can be outside yeah. and do science. Yeah. I mean, you get to travel. I mean, I didn't come from very, I would say, uh, I, I was, we were pretty not well off family. So mm-hmm. like you got to travel the world a bit. I mean, by the world, I mean, not far, um, but you got to travel. fairly middle class. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we were comfortable, but like getting to see the world a bit more was something that I just wanted to do. So, um, yeah. And so when it comes to, so the, what I'm con- when I think about evolution, mm-hmm. there's always the the human argument. Like, okay, sure. the, the, yes, we did, but no, we didn't. You know, there's there's a lot of people who like uh, what's that thing you say? Like, I didn't go, I never <laughs> see no monkey come turn into a human. Right? right? Yeah, definitely, I say that a lot. Yeah. So, but what is there evidence like that? I mean, how do you study evolution? Because it seems evolution takes a long time. That's a, good, that's a really good point. I you know. That's exactly it. We're talking about processes when we're talking about the evolution of humans on the, the time span of hundreds of thousands or millions of years, right? And a lot of these processes not only take long periods of time, but they might have really weak forces, right? Like think of adaptation to a new environment over millions of years. It doesn't have to be intense. It could be really weak. So a lot of people have trouble just wrapping their head around time, like millions of years, for one. Yeah. I, I have trouble, you know, like, <laughs> you know, how long is this egg going to take to cook? You know? Yeah. Or like, I forget what I did last week. Right. Um, right. So when you're talking millions of years. Yeah. And I think people just aren't equipped because our life is just, you know, such a short drop in the bucket that, you know, to say, well, do I really, am I even equipped to think about what, how that would look or how that would operate. So I think a lot of people are just maybe uneasy with that. Um, 
But it's undeniable that evolution's happening all around us constantly in the modern environment. Um, how so? Give me an example. Yeah, so how so? So, for instance, one study I just did, just to grab one out of the top of hat, it's kind of fresh in my mind because sure. it's something that I've been working on a lot lately, was looking at how the change in the geographic range of a species influences genetic diversity. Okay, back that up. Yeah, okay, so, sorry. I kind of no, that's all right. Up. No, no, no. So just so just so I'm understanding. So you're saying yeah. like uh, is some kind of uh, a species mm-hmm. is in a, some small geographic area. When you say geographic area, give me an example. Like you're talking about like a continent. Yeah. So this what we were looking at. Just to be really clear here, is this species known as the American bellflower, Campanula americana? It's found in the southeastern United States, but it's also distributed like all the way up to like southern Canada. And Ohio and Pennsylvania and those sorts of areas, and all the way west to the Mississippi River, and a little bit west beyond that. And so, what we did is we went all across its range and looked at genetic variation in the different populations across its range. And what we wanted to know was uh, could we find some sort of evidence that maybe it expanded from um, a smaller geographic area in the past? Oh, so it started l- l- like a, you know where the, they think of the origin of humans is in, sure, in, in Africa, Africa, right? Definitely. So every species has an, an orientation area. It's like or a historical range. Oh, yeah. I see. That's what it's called, a historical range. Yeah. And the range meaning? Uh, the geographic extent where you'd find that species. So okay. like if you open, if you flip open a map or um, a book on where plant species are found and you look at Campanula Americana, you'd see a little map that would paint the eastern part of North America. Oh, kind of like, you know, I've got a bird, one on birds. Right. So you like the birds, they're in this area. So the same kind of thing. Same thing. Okay. So, we, but we we were studying this mainly because it looked like there was this really interesting geographic pattern where plants that were found in the northern part of the range were much more likely to just make a seed when they were in a greenhouse without a pollinator. So there was a really strong tendency for plants from the north to you know basically mate with themselves, and that was not true for plants elsewhere. So we wanted to understand that, and so that's basically how all evolutionary biology pro, um, projects begin. You have variation. And then you just want to understand or test hypotheses about what explains that variation. So in our case, we actually went out initially and we had a hypothesis that, well, maybe there aren't a lot of pollinators up north. So we did a bunch of studies where we went out in the field, looked at the, the activity of pollinators, um, all this ecology, um, population sizes. You know, we, we basically gathered a bunch of data in modern environments. And we asked, does that predict the extent to which plants can mate with themselves. Because you might expect that if plants are adapting to a, an absence of pollinators, they might evolve this ability to mate with themselves. But we found out there was nothing there. I mean, there was no association at all. So that's a great part of science, right? You go out, you have a hypothesis, you test it, and then you learn from the outcome. And in that case, it's like, well, it's not anything we can see from what we studied anyway in the modern environment. So like of all the, so all the things that you can think about of, of how this could possibly happen, there's one thing that you know that doesn't do it. Yeah, we, you could basically cross one thing off the list. Yeah, out of, <laughs> out of you know, how many you can think of. Sure. And we did some other stuff which did, never got published because, um, yeah, I think it, we need a bit more work there. But then um, we ended up actually looking and testing a historical idea. And that idea is, well, maybe plants um, in the northern part of the range have recently... Um, made it to those geographic locations. And if that's true, we would expect those populations to have less genetic variation because what happens when 
a few plants get somewhere is there's not a lot of plants. So they tend to be related to each other and they have less variation. And that's exactly what we ended up finding. There's a really strong association between the amount of standing genetic variation in populations and their ability to mate with themselves. And so that hypothesis, we walked away and we were like, well, I get, that's some pretty decent evidence in support of that idea. And so... That because there's not a lot of genetic diversity, then therefore they have to they, they have to mate with themselves. And now what's that called, mating with yourself? Oh, it's self-fertilization. Self-fertilization. So, yeah. And is that common in plants in general? That's pretty common. Yeah, I'd say um, the vast majority of plants are hermaphroditic. So they, can, they have both pollen and ovules in the same flower. So they have the capacity, that dangerous association of those gametes to actually mate with themselves. And so it happens all the time in plants where some of the, some individuals will just tend to have a higher capacity to do that. Uh, and so I can't remember what we initially started talking about because I kind of got swamped into this thinking of this project. But I think in the end, it's about hypothesis testing. And so this is an interesting project because, you know, um, we were able to rule out some ideas, but then also find evidence for one idea that it's a historical movement of of individuals that's led to the evolution of these traits. Okay, so, so what we we're talking about is like, okay, here's proof of evolution in the field that you study. Oh, yeah. Because we we're talking about how it takes time, but we in plants exactly. it takes less time than I... No, it's, they still got the same problem. I think we're just talking about something on the time span of probably the last 50 to, to 100,000 years, um, stuff that's in during the last glacial period, basically. I think... In, in all these studies, even 50,000 years is a long time, right? I mean, even to think about that time span is hard. But I think for people who um, maybe have some hesitation at accepting evidence or inferences of evolution over long time spans, I would ask them, would evidence on a really short time span convince you? Hmm. So it has to be... They, they have to be able to actually see it happening. Sure. I mean... Or, or like, okay, so here's a... Here's a, a, a population. So like, okay, here, this is, I'm, now I'm thinking like with fruit flies are very, they, they do a lot of work with fruit yeah, flies definitely. too, because they tend to breed very quickly and rapidly and you mm-hmm. can see changes within it, yeah, right? Definitely. I mean, that is definitely something that you could oh yeah point to and say, this is evolution is happening here. Yes? Definitely. I mean, there's, I talk about this one it paper. It evolves. Yeah. So, you know, I, I wonder if people... Uh, not to really stop you from your paper, but yeah. so I think when people think of evol- evolution, they think of oh, it's uh, it's something that they they can't see. How can you know that that thing that we came from something in the ocean, right? right. And now now we're here. You can't really you can't really say that happened. Sure, there's no there's nothing no proof of that. Yeah. But there there's you know there's points along the way that will say it. But when you have something that you can actually see that you can say, well, it evolves, I think that there might be some nomenclature that people get confused with. Because I yeah. can like you go, well, it just it just evolved. Right. Well, there's a lot of things that evolve. Right. I mean, gases, there's evolution of gases, right? And that, yeah. that word can be really general. But going back to this indirect versus direct um, nature of evidence, mm. I think to limit yourself to only accepting your personal direct observation of things would would really constrain your ability to make progress in the modern world. For instance, um, or or your brain, or just to take what what you're reading a book is true. Right. I mean, I guess I 
I wonder why people would accept even a weather forecast then. Right, like they well, don't. They don't. <laughs> there's kind of reason you wouldn't accept a weather forecast. Oh, okay, because they're uncertain. Yeah, there's right. a lot of uncertainty in that. But sure. But you know, um, what? Because I do weather every day like, mm-hmm. all across the Northwest, and I'll tell people, you know, like uh, you, you know, you really screwed up that forecast. Whatever. Some people will give you crap about it. Well, with the, I don't go out and study the weather. The weather is given to me, but within 24 hours, weather is pretty predictable. You yeah. can say with fair amount of accuracy that it's going to get colder it's going to get warmer it's there's a chance of rain uh, a temperature variant you know that just blows me away how they, how they can tell a temperature for the day that just that, that how they do that i have no idea but i mean within 24 hours it's pretty good you get outside of that then you're getting into like well then they, you know the weather could change it depends on where you live etc but you know weather wind conditions and yeah Whatever's going on on the ground, there's a lot, a lot of things there. But yeah, so, so but yes, uh, uh, that's not to debunk you. Sorry, man. <laughs> no, no, this is great. Actually, I, I, I love being debunked. I mean, but I guess I, for instance, climate change is a is a really similar thing, right? Um, some people will say, you know, in my lifetime, I haven't experienced or maybe haven't perceived a change in the weather, right? So they have people have not directly observed that in their own experience. But if they were, I would then ask them, well, if I show you a plot of the, which years were the, were the hottest on average. And if you see that, like of the last 19 years since the turn of the century, 16 or 17 of them are the hottest ever recorded since we started gathering data. And like what? 1882, I think. Really? I think, because I was looking at September of 2019 People are saying that it it's prob it's aiming to be perhaps the warmest September ever on record since they started taking records in 1882. I think. Wow. I mean, that probably depends on where you're at, but but that seems really non-random to me, right? I mean, sure, you might not perceive change, but just to logically sit down and say, if it was random, would those hottest years pile up all in the last 20? That seems really unlikely to me. So I, I guess I just ask. In the end, maybe it comes down to asking people what types of evidence will would convince them that something is going on. And yeah, but and, and that isn't that isn't that a moving target though? Because what, they, what do you mean by that? Well that okay you can say well what kind of evidence would prove to you that this exists or that uh, sure. right? But then they go, well yeah I didn't it didn't it didn't happen that time. You know, maybe you need to do this, you know, so that that their their idea of how what evidence they might need is going to change sure. based on the evidence they got that they that didn't uh, prove their point that they already had in their head. Yeah, I guess that's why I ask. I like to keep it simple. Like, what specific thing would make you rethink your position on this topic? And just keep it really simple, because then you just evaluate that whether or not it's that's, true. That's a that's a really good question. Yeah, you know what would what would change your mind? What would it take? Tell me what it would take, and then, okay, well, what if I have that evidence? Right, because then if someone responds to that with a new idea, that that can happen. That's fine if it's intellectually honest, but if it's constant Boy, and that's so tough. and um, well, it's hard, you know, in the end, you just want to trust people, right? I think we have to trust each other, and that's why it's an honest question to someone. And and if and if they change their mind, that's fine. We can then talk about why they changed their mind. But I see sometimes like this willing, 
sort of this um, willingness to not want to change your mind, right? And I think in that in the end, that's just not how I'm wired. I th- I just think we should constantly be changing our minds based upon the evidence. And um, but that's just me, you know. I don't I don't know. I, I, you're saying I have to change my mind about something I, I have a firm <laughs> belief in, even though I have no evidence for it. Is that what you're telling Whoa, me? Oh man, slow it down. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I don't know. I guess I. You seem to. I mean, you're a little older than me. Um, you don't seem to have like. I mean, you you understand how the world works and how your life goes, but you don't seem to have these firm ideas of the way things have to be. No. Yeah. No. Except dinner at six. <laughs> That's a joke. That's a joke. No. Yeah. Everything is fluid. There's life yeah. is too unpredictable to to have really staunch anythings. Yeah. I think it, it's a lot more fun if you let go. Yeah. You know, if you're if you have these rules all the time, it's uh well, Yeah, I don't like rules. And being a scientist, I mean your 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 assumptions are being tested constantly. Yeah, definitely. Constantly. Um, and you're always learning. I think that's a good thing, too, about that that pursuit of knowledge or understanding is you just constantly have to learn. Um, it's hard. On the one hand, it's kind of hard because it's hard to learn. It things. is. It yeah. is. And you're constantly doing it, right? Like yeah, every day so. you're learning something. Am I right in this? I'm yeah. I mean, when you're um, trying to make progress on a project like this project in this bellflower species I was talking about, I had to learn all this new stuff. Um, and, uh, I really had to change the way I think about, um, things and gain new skills. And so, um, I think that's kind of the fun part of it though. If you, you kind of get addicted to it almost because then you you, you realize that, you know, the next, the next, um, I wouldn't say leap, but the next gain of understanding or, or knowledge is a challenge. Like it's going to require you to work a little harder and learn some new things and be uncomfortable. And I think scientists are always in that like uncomfortable state, like you're saying, you know, um, is it this idea? Is it that idea? I don't know. Should I look at it in a different way? Um, and maybe that's what people really have hesitations with, with evolution and climate change. Like they don't, they don't want, maybe it's, maybe it's tiring to think, think of being in a world of constant flux, you know, I could totally understand that. Hmm. Cause you know, you could imagine that, you know, din- dinner's at six. Yeah. My life is this way. Yeah. And then if you constantly have to update like the way things your understanding of the world, that's hard. I think that's hard for people. Well, you know, um um was talking to uh a person who shall remain nameless and they're saying that, you know, well, the world has had these problems in the past. Now, this we're not talking evolution, just talking we're gonna stick to climate change as an example yeah. of, of empirical time. evidence or not. Sure. That the world has had problems like this in the past. And the world will solve this problem too. But when you start looking at, just look at like, uh, okay, for example, greenhouse gases. Okay, let's see how much carbon is in the air, right? Or, or CO2, right? So you, how long do you think they've been just taking a jug and put, grabbing some air, put a cork in it, and then measure what is in the air? Yeah, not I mean, long. That's been, you know, maybe 100 years? Yeah, not long. But you can use ice cores. And then ice cores, right. To, to indirectly or, you know, very, and make really accurate inferences on the amount of CO2 that was in the air long ago. So you don't have to, it doesn't have to be constrained to just when we had modern technology. It can go way, 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 way back. 
But it's not. But it's not difficult. What I'm saying is yeah. to go and grab some air, right, wherever you are, sure. and then measure, and then do that again, and do it again, and then you go, wow, there sure is a lot of things that make the uh, Earth get warm in the air right now, or the atmosphere. Sure, correlations, right? Yeah. But I guess, so I'm going to go back to what you said about the argument that the Earth's climate has changed in the past, it's been warm in the past, and it all shook out and, we're, and everything's great, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's an argument ba- predicated on the belief that it will shake out, right? There's nothing about, you know, prior stock performance is not a guarantee of future stock performance, Right. And in the end, that's just something someone tells themselves to feel okay about things they don't really understand very well. Hmm. In the end, it comes down to what underlying processes in a quantitative way are predicting these changes, right? And so when we're talking that, what I mean is you're talking about numbers here. Mm-hmm. The increase in CO2 in the last, you know, since the Industrial Revolution has been very, very profound. Oh, yeah, the, the, the chart on that is just... It's like, do 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 going along, Spike. industrial revolution, zoom, just like, it's like almost, almost 90 degrees. It's like a 45 degree angle it shoots up, like yeah. very rapidly. Yeah. So in the end, it's, that seems like it could have an effect on the temperature. And of course, there's mechanistic evidence that it does. And so I just think when people say things like, oh yeah, it's all going to work out, things have, this has happened before. They're not actually paying attention to what is like this, how this is different, mm-hmm. right? Humans are playing a role in this. Yeah, I don't think humans played a role in the last, whenever the oldest climate warming was in the Miocene. You know, that was a, <laughs> that was millions of years ago. Yeah, and uh, we weren't burning a lot of fossil fuels back then. Yeah, or just uh, think of how many things that we're digging out of the earth every day. Um, you know, just think about your cell phone and how all the the different uh, materials that go into that that have to be mined. I mean, yeah. th- it's not like they just kind of go, oh, we're going to make it out of plastic. There's a lot of plastic. Well, where does that come from? Or just the little bits of metals that are in your, your phone. There's, I can't even tell you what kind of metals are in it, but it's like, and glass. And there's all kinds of stuff that goes into that. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. Where does that come from? Earth. You know? Yeah, it's amazing. I guess I went to China, I think, a couple of years ago to, to you go. You think you went to China a yeah. couple of years ago? <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember when. So okay. was it last yeah. year or two years ago? I think it was two years ago. I think it was last year, man. Was it last year? Okay. Yeah, it was 2018. So. Yeah. Okay. Time flies, right? Yeah. Um, but anyway, I remember um, that was a great trip, but it really changed the way I think about some things. Mm. I'm, you know, you live in your experience, right? This yeah. Is, I'm kind of following up on what I said about people in general, but... All I know is like Western North America, basically. Yeah. That's my experience. Uh, I can imagine what it's like in other places of the world, but I had never gone. And I, of course, I knew China was a big producer of things, right? But one of the interesting moments on that trip was flying into, into Shanghai. And, you know, you're flying into Shanghai. It's a huge seaport, right? And you just look at all the traffic, all the barge traffic on its way out of China. It was crazy. There was like... From the plane, looking out of the ocean as the sun's going down, I could see at least 40 to 50 huge tankers, right? And that's just one day that I happened to be there. And you think about, like, all the products. And I'm I'm not blaming China here. I'm just saying, like, this is a producing country, right? Um, You just think about that happening every day. 
just the scale of what what we're doing. Um, yeah, it was pretty humbling. And then to see that China is, um, you know, has as much fossil fuel use as we have, basically, at least in the city I was in, was was kind of eye opening because it's so it's not just Western North America, it's pretty much everywhere. Which to me that was just an eye opener. I know it sounds really kind of stupid, but it really kind of made me think, whoa, we're we're really producing. Yeah, and then uh, and that well, and it's a massive country with massive people. And, uh, you know, that's just one country, too. Yep, you know, right. everybody's making stuff and shipping it. You know, United States, think how many Definitely. come out of, you know, we've got, you know, East Coast, West Coast, or, you know, the, the Gulf all over. Yeah. I mean, it's, it definitely makes you think. That's but one of the reasons I've been biking a lot this fall and trying to just use less gas and, and be healthier. It takes a little bit more work, but. Yeah, that's um, good for you, man. But I've been feeling better. Uh, I'm feeling really good, actually. So. Good. Yeah. You know, and do you think that's how you evolved? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. You know, I was uh, thinking, I want to go back to to evolution because cool. the, uh, I've got so many, I've got a lot of questions. This that is I awesome. Put up. Well, thank you. Um, so uh, one is uh, GMOs. Yeah. Genetically modified organisms. So they seem to be coming up and popping up everywhere. But so what what's what's is the current thinking about GMOs and what is the effect of those on genetic on regular genetic organisms? Does that make sense on yeah. standard on non-modified gen- organisms? Non- yeah. Wow, this is totally outside my wheelhouse, but I is I know it? a bit. Oh, okay. Okay. So um so you mean what's the current understanding of GMOs like are they uh, a threat to biodiversity or or well, I'm thinking we're okay. <clears throat> excuse me. The so we're talking about evolution, right? And genetics plays a huge role into that. Gotcha. So, but you don't know much about genetics in general, but you have an idea because you deal with evolution, right? Right. I know a fair amount about genetics. So okay. So in this case, so the question is maybe how would a genetically modified organism evolve in a different way, for instance, than the standard organism? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because yeah. it's not because. Genetically modified organisms are not modified the way that it used to be done sure. with animal breeding and uh, pollinating plants in a certain way and letting them grow to find out what you get. These are done in a lab and modifying sure. the DNA right. of these organisms. Right. For instance, you know, inserting a bacterial toxin, a gene that, from a bacteria that produces a toxin which kills bugs, for instance, putting that in corn. Like yeah. BT corn, for instance. Yeah. That's what they call it. I think it's, I don't even know the name of the bacteria, but BT is the bacterial species. And so, um, so the thing, so you're, so if you insert that gene there, that's obviously going to have fitness impacts. So I guess when you think about how that might influence evolution, I would ask, you could think really narrowly about how that would affect evolution in the corn system. Well, in, for, in the corn system, I think it's totally contrived. Um, those plants are put in the seed in, in the ground as seedlings, which are bought from a stock company because they buy those GMO organisms. Put them in the ground, they grow, and then I'm not certain that they that many of those seeds actually grow up in the next generation. They till the ground and they plant just an entirely new stock of probably the same line of GMO seed. So it seems like I'm sure there are going to be some escapees 
of of corn from those populations, but for the most part, I'd imagine that there's not much opportunity for real evolution, right? Because you're just basically growing them up to to adulthood, and then the offspring basically are are rarely ever grown in in the, in the environment. The problem I think can happen when those GMOs escape from uh, the agricultural setting into the genomes of close relatives. So. Um, I think there is evidence for this glyphosate resistance. So that's Roundup resistance mm-hmm. in in canola in Canada. So canola, you know, you you drive by in the spring and you see these really beautiful yellow flowering things, and and people grow canola because they want seed seed oil basically. Mm-hmm. But uh, the problem with canola is it's got some wild relatives that also are very weedy that can grow nearby. And there was some pretty good evidence in the early two thousands showing that some of this glyphosate resistance from this crop, Brassica napus, had escaped in Nebraska Reba, uh, a co-occurring weed species. So if that gets into the weed now, imagine what would happen in the weed. Oh, the weed yeah. could evolve to become some sort of super weed, right, where it has resistance to the chemicals we pour on everything else. So I think the danger is in what we kind of don't think about, <laughs> right? So in this case, it would be escape. I'm not so certain. I, I need to think more about it, but I it doesn't seem to me like in a contrived agricultural setting as long as you're preventing the escapees from getting out and living much maybe maybe the problems aren't too profound but again that's probably too optimistic too so I don't, i'm probably babbling but does that make no no sense? I, don't, I, I don't think so I, you, you know you're trying to it's a fairly crazy question you know like yeah, okay, it's good well, well what happens if this thing could because we were talking like a, we were on a, a a long car ride here and we talked about how some how they're actually using like um, uh, pig DNA or parts of a uh, swine to put into plants that help them become, you know, some th- that do something for that plant so it grows better in certain climates or is resistant to disease, Whoa. you know, that yeah. type of thing. That to me, that that really is that to me, that's scary. I mean, just think about that. It's like, like what, the Frankenstein aspect that scares you, right? Yeah. yeah. That, I mean, what are you doing? You know. Now I understand that you know without a lot of these GMOs, I wonder if that uh, we would be feeding the planet as we are now. Because when I was a kid, they were saying, we're going to get to X billion of people, can't feed them. How are we going to feed these people? Yeah, We seem to be doing it. There are There is starvation, not trying to say that Definitely. there's not. But b- predominantly, there's a lot of people being fed. Yeah, I mean, agricultural production's gone up. Um when I was in that China meeting, I actually saw a talk by this uh, really good wheat biologist from the UK. I can't remember his name, but he showed a graph of wheat productivity in the last 20, 30 years, and it's gone way up. And I'm sure that's happened in other lineages. But I think um, this is kind of non-scientific, but I think there's probably a lot of food we could distribute better. Oh, yeah, or wasted food. My yeah. God. I mean, I think we can feed... We, we could probably feed many, many people who are right now starving. It's just a matter of um, capitalism. <laughs> think so? I don't know. I feel like, um, think if you're a food company and you have leftover food. I know there's a lot of really um, forward-thinking food companies and, and grocery stores that actually do think about the waste that they produce and, and distribute it to the right people. But I imagine some at some part of the day, a company has to make a decision between, you know, a monetary decision about we're going to spend money and employee time on distributing these foods, or are we just going to dump it? I mean, I don't know enough about this topic, but I'd imagine 
The problem, if money wasn't the big motivator and it was more about feeding people, and that was the criterion that everyone used, I don't think we'd have as much hunger. Yeah. And then there's also the issue you have, like you said, of getting that, that food to people. You have to know where the hungry people are in order yeah. to get it to them. And they, you know, um, okay, going, going into places I have no, I'm just spouting off here a little bit, but to, because you've got to know where those hungry people are that was going to eat all of this food that is left, that is waste of people who are, who, who have more money, basically. Right. I mean, if you're wealthy, you can eat what you want, where you want, when you want, how much you want. But if you're, you're starving and poor, you're going to take what comes off the table, you know, the scraps. Yeah. And then how do you get that to where they are? And you have to know where those hungry people are. You yeah. can't, you just can't just have a soup kitchen and expect them all to come. Cause that's, yeah. You know, I don't know. We're, that's, that's a crazy thought process there. Like, how do you get the food to the people that are hungry without, you know, it's like come and get it. Well, what if you're not close to that? Come yeah. and get it spot. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I would look around for models where people have figured it out. Yeah. Cities where people have a distribution system or, I guess you need people who are going to be the middlemen. Yeah. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine in town, and she's really involved with Backyard Harvest. So this is oh, a yeah. company mm-hmm. that basically goes, and if you have a big cherry tree that time of year and you're not going to be around, you can tell them they'll pick it or they'll get someone to pick it, mm-hmm. and then they'll try to distribute it. And I and she's told me that the hard part is actually distributing. Yeah, before it goes bad. Yeah. So I think, um, but I think it's just a matter of learning the the best model from other people or in our area, maybe it's just people. We don't have so many people. Maybe, um, yes, yeah, maybe town. that's part of it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what do we have like 30 some thousand people here? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe around there, 50, 60,000 in the two cities. Maybe it's just not big enough to have a critical mass for having a distributor. But again, that's a, well, there are food banks. I mean, it's, it's not as if we don't have people. Who I didn't know we had a food bank. That's yeah. Cool. Uh-huh. That's great. Yeah. It's not as if there aren't people here who, 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 uh, who, to, I was going to use a double negative. There are people here. Double <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, just to, just to bogey, there aren't people here who don't go hungry. I hate that. <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> so we have people in the area who, who are hungry. Yeah, so, certainly. You know, uh, maybe maybe not, I don't know, starving. Um, you know, who, who knows? But, um, but, you know, just talking to you about uh, this is that as a scientist, talking just science is that there's a... You, part of being a science is asking the right question. Amen to that. That's got to be hard. How do you come up with the right question? Whoa, man. You just blew my mind. <laughs> Sometimes. I mean, wow. That's a, I mean, so <laughs> I just had the, I had the feeling that my graduate students have, I think, when, when <laughs> I'm talking to them. Because it's, you know, how do you, how do you go about the process of, Asking the right questions. Yeah. So tough. Wow. Uh, well, I think, I think it depends. Um, I think you can really want to know how something works and you could learn all about that. So for instance, you know, selfing in plants, that's yeah, it's back kind of my wheelhouse, right? Yeah, right? I mean, whatever that means. I mean, it's such yeah. a random wheelhouse and it's not very useful, but I find it interesting. But, you know, I, I for some reason, was really interested in that problem because it seemed to me like plants... The, the, the problem of the, the plant self-fertilizing. Um, uh, for, for, self-fertilizing, yeah. 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 I mean, 
for instance, it evolves all the time, but it doesn't seem to be as common as it should be if it does evolve all the time. That always kind of struck me as an issue. So I was always interested in why it evolves. And so if you want to figure out that problem, predict, say, why is it that selfing evolves so often? Well, I think you have to sit step back and, and then read a little bit on what other people have done. I think this is the great thing about science is a lot of really smart people have tried thinking about things before and written down their ideas. So you read what they've done. You think through, well, does that explain my question, my, my interest again? If it doesn't quite explain your interest, then it comes down to figuring out, well, well, why does it not explain my interest? Is it because the ideas that are out there um, need to be refined? Or is it because there's something that they haven't thought of? I think the first part, if, if the ideas need to be refined, you have a really good starting place. But if the ideas... If, if you want to think of a new idea, that's like the most exciting thing in science, but also the very difficult thing to do, right? Because you're in the Wild West. So I guess, um, but you're asking like, how do you even ask the question, right? Like to me, it was always, you just get interested in things. Um, but, but then there is an art to basically asking things which can be answered. It's, it's kind of... Um, so I guess the toughest question, the, t the question that you're really after is trying to get an answer to a question that can't be answered. Is that like, is Whoa. that a kind of a goal of science is to find the question that can't be answered so that way you're always pursuing the oh, answer? Oh, no. No, I like, think you it's know, the exact that math op. question that people have been studying forever and oh, nobody no. has an answer to. I actually think it's the exact opposite. I'm probably okay. being not very clear. So I think you want to make progress. In order to make progress, you have to ask questions and answer those questions. Uh, but I okay, think okay, so you a, want a question that you can find yes. an answer to that you think that there is an answer to it, and you just need to find yeah. how to get there. And sometimes you can go through that process and realize, well, I tried answering the question and I don't have enough information, mm -hmm. so I don't, I'm kind of I'm kind of up in the air about it. But a lot of times you get a little bit, of, just a little bit of information allows you to say something. Um, and then you make progress. You either say this idea has some merit, let's continue polishing it, or you just move, you you reject it. Um, yeah, I think you absolutely you have to work on things that can be answered, right? Maybe I said can't, but you you definitely have to work on things that can be answered. Yeah, because because uh, then you actually you're trying to progress to to move get some progress on what it is that you're studying. Yeah. Yeah, I mean. So you so when you're sitting there trying to discover new things, trying to ask the right question is really important because if you're not, it's, that's basically a thesis, right? Isn't it? Or, or no, a yeah. theorem. Yeah. I mean. What my theorem is that uh, these plants are uh, self, uh, I can't think of the word <laughs> again. They, 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 they self-fertilize. Self-fertilize. These plants self-fertilize because there's not a lot of other people and other plants to help fertilize it. Sure. So that's the question. But to get to that question, you had to do some other studying to go, hey, has anybody else asked this question about this particular plant? Yeah, right. And you had to think about, well, what is, yeah, what's known about it? And then, well, if you know the geography of the species and its history, you can then build, you can come up with ideas, which mm -hmm. you can then test. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, how do people find questions? That's great. I mean, I have this colleague um, at, at work who is fantastic. And he always talks about, well, where do theories come from? Whoa. And it kind of blows my mind um, because they they come from people, mm -hmm. 
right? Mm-hmm. People are making abstractions about the world, but those theorems actually come from people. And so um, how do people come up with those new ideas? They probably had a question that led them to that new idea. Right? There's some, they see some inconsistency, like for instance, um, relativity and Newton- Newtonian um, physics, right? Like there's a discrepancy in the movement of bodies when speeds are high and gra- and masses are huge. Yeah. So there must be something wrong. So people start asking, well, what is it? And then I think, you know, really smart people like Einstein think about it in a new way. And then they, that gets some evidence and then it becomes a theorem. And it's just amazing, right? This whole like a uh, system of turnover in science. A lot of people think it's very static. Like these are the ideas and there's always going to be these three ideas. They're on the table. Um, and we're just going to talk about them forever. Um, but it's, there's, it's dynamic, right? Like there are new ideas which can be very, very informative and compelling. And then people want to know, is that really right? Do we need to make it better? Do we need to come up with something entirely new? It's just constant. Yeah. You know, that's something I like about science too, that, you know, nothing, there's, uh, well, there, okay. What do you call something that is like, this is basically a fact of science? I guess people would call that a law. Okay, a law of, okay. So, like, it, gravity, is it a law, or is it still a theory? Good question. I don't, I, we're not. Yeah. I don't know. So, but I'm thinking, like, okay, but that's what I like about science, is that it's not, there's so much uncertainty. We're going to call it a theory, because there's nothing that can prove it wrong. Is that correct? Well, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's the, yeah, definitely. It's here's a, here's kind of, of a rule. Yeah. And nobody is until, but it's only a theory because there's nothing else to say that it's not true. Yeah. That transition between a theory and a law, I don't quite know. I guess. I don't either. I don't know these things. Um, It seems like they're very gray to me. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Like, I mean, law seems to me like, yeah, it's, it can still be overturned. Yeah. Like we, like we started this conversation is that, you know, we, you, everything is, you want to be proven wrong sometimes. Like everything you mm-hmm. do, you know, what, how, how awesome. is this wrong? Tell me how it's wrong so I can learn from that. Yeah. Because it's never really, this is, this is what I learned. This is, so now it's fact. And then somebody else comes along and does that same study goes, no. You yeah. Know. Yeah. That's what I, I guess I'm thinking a lot about my teaching this semester. So I'm teaching this, this graduate level class in population genetics, which is basically the Machinery. Population genetics. Yeah, so it's kind of like the framework we use to test for why test ideas for why populations evolve. So hmm. you can basically say, well, okay, wait. When you say populations, so for instance, you might have this population of of Drosophila. Okay, okay. So and, when I think I, I, when you say populations, I think people. Ah, uh, okay. Sorry, I, that's not what I. So say. You, it, when you say you just think a, a group of or yeah. okay, populations of, it's just a you're basically using it as a number. Yeah, like it's a collection of individuals who okay. are coherent in some way. They mate together and they make offspring and stuff. But if you have populations, and that could be agricultural, it could be wild, it could be populations of cancer cells in a human patient versus non-cancer cells. I mean, you could think of populations really broadly. But if you if you have those types of populations, we we talk about what 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 you can learn from studying their genetics, either in space or in time, and. What I when I first taught this class, I was really intimidated by. It. I still am actually. It's a very difficult topic, as you can imagine, right? It's space and time, a bunch of change. It's complicated. Uh, but when I first started teaching it, I think I was just also a little insecure. I felt like the way I had to teach it was this is what's known, 
Oh. But now I, this is like my ninth or tenth year teaching it, and now I basically I'm a little bit more confident in the basic foundation of this field. So I give them the nuts and bolts, those basics, right? But then I ask students to basically prove me wrong or show me how this other thing should work. Like in our problem sets are, show me how you get to this answer. Because I'm curious, like how you get there, right? And I think we have to teach students the basic foundations, give them enough skills, but then ask them, hey, show me how this should work. Because otherwise I just feel like um, we're, we're um, students have this great opportunity to learn from that. And we do too, right? When someone says, show me how this works, you can learn from that. And then you're going to be even more dangerous when you decide to do the next thing. <laughs> even more dangerous. I like that. Yeah. I mean, so I guess I just really like being mu- open to other people doing things in new ways because I learn about it and it changes the way I think. So I don't yeah. know. I guess I'm just getting old. <laughs> <laughs> there's a switch wow yeah what, what so you're feeling your age the that uh this the in a good way things in a good and, way and being challenged by it, that makes you feel old in a good way i'm not saying old it sounds you know i'm i'm me so when i say oh i'm old it sounds negative but what i mean is i see some gray hairs and i've learned a few things and and i'm happier with the way i do science now yeah wow you know i wonder i wonder how that's um because I was just, I just had a, like my performance review and um, my reviewer said uh, that, um, you know, that I had become more mature. I suddenly had changed, like become, it took this, this change in maturity in hmm. myself. They noticed this change in maturity and I'm like, well, I wonder how I, I, I really, so <laughs> I still think of myself as some 26 year old idiot, you yeah. know, that surprised you. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, I don't, I, I guess that uh, I think of maturity, I think of like my dad, I think right. of my parents, I think of that mature, and then I realize I'm 52 years old. I am that person. You are. That, I am that, yeah. I am that mature person. Yeah. Uh, I'm the, you know, I'm the elder in the, you know, well, in our group of friends, it's uh, me and Craig, you know, we're, yeah. we're pretty much the oldest people in the, in the room. It kind of blows me away. Like, yeah. well, I guess so. I mean, I'm getting wise. That's cool that... Here's that, to you, man. We're drinking this session. We're drinking beer right now. We're awesome. drinking this uh, cool. session Mexican-style lager. That's great. Cerveza. I like it. Yeah, it's pretty good. It is. It's, a, it's, it's nice, and it's, it's like 4.5%. It's in Hood River. That's mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. Yeah, I guess... But yeah, maturity... That's crazy that it, they said that. Yeah. And so that gets us back to evolution. See how I've evolved? <laughs> Yeah, right. Individuals don't evolve, man. <laughs> we we all stay sixteen <laughs> in, in idiots, and you know. But I guess that comes down. Isn't Pokemon like individual Pokemon can quote evolve <laughs> right into its final form? Right, right. And I think that so we have to kind of battle out a bit where it's evolution is yeah not individuals changing. Oh wow! But I yeah mature. Wow, you know I've noted. I listened to you on the radio. Mm-hmm. You've been really good the last like six months. I, I'm i not know. saying, you know, you could take that as a backhanded oh, dude, compliment. No, oh, no, no. Uh, I, I, I know what you mean. The last six months, you've just been like totally on it. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, uh, you, there are ebbs and flows of you know, like anybody's job. Sometimes you're, oh, yeah. you're really on it. 
Sometimes you're not so on it. And I'd say like in the last six months, I've been really on it, been changing uh, uh, what I do at my job to become better at what I'm doing. And it's, and it's, a, you know, I'm constantly evolving. <laughs> <laughs> you got, you got me. Yeah. But that's, that's it. Just, you know, paying more attention to it, being, being better at that. Uh, you know, I was uh, looking at my list of questions and I was, so we're talking about evolution, right? Yeah. And like the, the book that everybody talks about is uh, the origin of species mm-hmm. by Darwin. So I looked that up. Awesome. Right. I looked it up. I read a little bit of it. Not, and I, there's, it? there's nothing there that I could really glean from it to. to the get. writing's a little but hard. But the thing that I got from it was the title. I never knew the full title of it. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. It's a long title. I'm like, that, that makes way more sense. And just say the origin of species. Right, because then it's like, how do species form? It just uh, it makes it very simplistic. But when you add by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored species or favored races in the struggle for life, that's a book I want to read. But you're talking about the origin of species, all, oh, you know, the people, in my mind, I, I think of other people out there who just see origin of species, that means man came from here. Birds came from, this was the origin of man, uh, okay. the, right? Right. But it's basically how things were favored and right, the where process. they struggle, in the struggle for life. I'm like, yeah, struggle is what makes us stronger. Yeah. Yeah, there's a process in that title. Yeah. Yeah, instead of just a, a fact. Yeah, this is it, origin of species. And that's, like, that's what made his book so great was, you know, he had this way of, marshalling all this evidence to make an inference about what underlying process is likely going on, right? So that was, it's all about the process, right? Of how things change is what, is what made it such a great idea, this natural selection idea. Um, so yeah, I, I think I forget, I wish I could, I wish I could re relearn for the first time some of these, some of these processes like how evolution works just to know how I would think about them. Cause I, to be honest, when I first learned about it, so in high school, I was in Arkansas. Uh, we got, I think a few days of, of evolution and biodiversity stuff at the very end. And I didn't understand really any of the processes. I just knew that maybe there was change. And, um, so for a long time, I think even into early college, like I didn't, I had a lot of misconceptions cause there's a lot of, things in our society we talk about that are just, you know, they're a little confusing or wrong. And so it took, it was like a fuzzy 10 year period of slowly refining the ideas. You can tell I'm a slow learner. Well, you know, is anybody a fast learner? I mean, you can only learn it at a pace. Maybe yeah. some people pick things up quicker than other others, but and that's, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I, the only person I think of when I think of somebody who's a fast learner, I think of Feynman. But yeah, wow, it's fun watching some of his old videos talking about science. Yeah, I mean, and he does everything. He paints. He, uh, Doctor yeah. Richard Feynman. Yes. Yeah, and uh, just uh, he's still he's still going at it. He's still around. He tweets. He's still around. Yeah, he tweets. Wow, I didn't know he was still around. Yeah, <laughs> crazy. Kind of funny. Okay, I, I've got to jump in here. He tweets. 
Just because somebody's name tweets does not mean that they are alive or even exist. Uh, sorry to say, but Dr. Richard Feynman died back in 1988. Jeez, like, he tweets. Henry VIII tweets. Santa Claus tweets. I tweet. Everybody tweets. Doesn't mean they're still doing their thing. Jeez, I feel so stupid. Sorry. Sorry. Okay, uh, back to the show. Uh, but you were saying, oh, yeah. Darwin, the origin of species. So yeah. you, you picked it up and you kind of looked at it. I just did looked you go, it up online. Just did you look beyond the title or? Yeah, I just kind of, well, I just kind of flipped through it. Gotcha. And it's kind of like, uh, oh, here it is online. And did you see just, a figure in there? No. Was it you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What figure? Figure. There's one figure in his book. Um, it's a figure of this sort of tree-looking diagram, uh, uh-huh. where there's you know. Um, yeah, branches on a tree and leaves at the very end of those branches. And those are meant to represent species or populations over time. Um, and that was his other great insight in that book was that we're all connected through this common ancestry. So if you think about the organisms on the planet today, you know, they look very different. But um, given a lot of the homology we have, like we all have very similar DNA, all very similar molecular biology. It's likely we came from a, you know one or very few origins. That's still up to, for debate. But you can imagine that all these diverse forms on the planet today descend from common ancestors through time. And that was like, wow, what an idea. Because <laughs> basically, I mean, the idea of special creation is that everything formed suddenly and doesn't change. And suddenly you have this new idea where things change over time. And in the past, those organisms didn't look like they did today. Right? They, those, the ancestors of today's organisms look very different. And I think that's just such a crazy way to think about the world. Yeah, especially from a creationist point of view, that was, yeah. that was the standard mode of thinking. Yeah, definitely. Static. I mean, and I, that's fine, right? That's where people come from. Um, and I mean, talking historically about how the world or, or thought about things, but this was a really good idea because uh, it makes sense of a lot of um, curious similarities amongst organisms, you know? Um, and didn't, was it in the Galapagos Island had big influence on him? Yeah. I, it, you know, he spent some time on the Beagle traveling around, um, being the, the, scientist on board and he did some collections um and yeah he spent some time on the galapagos collecting a lot of these finch species and making a lot of notes on other organisms that live there um and i think those species of finches are highly similar to each other but intimately adapted to their local environments like are they a cactus finch are they a ground finch or are they a seed cracking finch that kind of thing and i think that got him to think a bit but, you know, I think people overplay maybe how much that those organisms had in his thinking. I mean, this is a guy who's not just thinking about finches. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a guy who wrote a bunch of books, like a, a book on like orchid biology and plant sex and um, how coral, how atolls form over time. Wow. Like he, and he, even there, he was looking at different types of atolls, those that just have the tiny ring around them, those that are a little bit different. And he came up with a historical argument for how they evolve. No, I'm using the word evolve there, just how they change over time. And this is a guy who was using that context for to understand geology and 
biology. So I, I don't know. I think the Darwin's finches are great, but I think they get a lot of attention. Uh, I'm not saying they shouldn't get attention. I just think they're, he was doing a lot. I mean, yeah, he's, he's pretty impressive. I wonder what kind of questions he had. Yeah, I wish I could sit down and chat with him. He'd yeah. probably be... He'd be blown away by what we're doing today. Oh, oh, yeah, Un, yeah. Come on, you know. I it was so uh, also getting into this. So talking about looking up information about you know just so I could have some basis. Like I was telling you, I did a bit of research, not too much, because I like to That's have. That's how it, I am too. Because <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I gotta have a basis to come up with some questions to at least start things going, and then yeah. you know to to keep things flowing a little bit. So. Um, but uh, where was I going with this? About uh, oh, oh, we're talking about the finches. Okay, no, we talked, but uh, DNA. Oh, if yeah. we, if you think about what he is looking at as like natural selection, and here we are, like genetically modified organisms, and mm-hmm. we are selecting where you know where it's not natural selection. Yeah, artificial selection. Right? Artificial selection. Right. Yeah, but I mean, blown away by that. I mean, and just yeah. just the double helix. Yeah, DNA is crazy. That's just nuts. And epigenetics is crazy too. Have you heard of this? This um, epigenetics. Yeah, so it's basically uh, changes to the DNA molecule, which um, are in caused by the environment. So if you're ra- if you are a mother and you're um, have a fetus, and you as a mother expose that fetus to certain environmental um, chemicals or stimulants that could cause changes in the expression of genes, which can actually be inherited across time, right? So there, it's kind of a cool field that we're learning a lot about now where the environment can lead to lasting genetic or heritable change in DNA molecules, which is pretty cool. Um, I think there's there's just, yeah, there's a lot of cool evidence out there. Wow. Yeah, so it's not just, you know, waiting for mutations to happen. The environment can cause these lasting marks on dna so it's just amazing and we're still learning so much like darwin would be blown away today i'd be blown away next week yeah right uh i think and in a hundred years i can't i mean i just think we're gonna have well assuming we're still doing this i think we're gonna have you know even more ability to answer good questions hopefully we're still around yeah yeah, you never know, but uh, yeah, I think the chances are. I mean, I'm I'm trying to pickle my liver, so <laughs> in a little bit at a time. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, th- so I sent you an article about cichlids. Right. Did you read that article or uh, I passed over it? Yeah, I just kind of sent it to you and said, "Hey, this is cool." Actually, a student in my class today mentioned that article. Yeah, got it out of a Quanta magazine. Um, online, it's an online magazine thing. Very interesting. It got really cool articles on that mm-hmm. that thing, and that just kind of happened uh, across that. And so it was talking about um, new theory of speciation. Mm-hmm. So what is speciation? Okay, so speciation is the process whereby two populations evolve reproductive isolation. So they evolve some sort of change such that they're less likely to mate and produce offspring. Okay. Does that make sense? So by reproductive isolation, I mean anything which makes it less likely for them to either mate and make offspring or to make viable offspring. Okay. So it's like a a horse and mule kind of a thing. Yeah. 
It's horse like and that. horse, donkey, mule. Yeah. How does it work? A horse and a donkey make a mule, which yeah. is sterile. I don't know if they are, but yeah. I think one of the sexes might be sterile and the other is not. But that's the idea, right? So mm-hmm. populations become different enough in some way such that they can either not recognize each other or if they do recognize each other, their offspring are so poorly fit that they don't do well. And so this article was basically saying the way people think about how that works is you sit around and you wait for new mutations to show up. That takes a long time, right? That's mm-hmm. the way classical theory is for speciation. Yeah. Um, some of these old theories, yeah, they're, you're waiting around for new stuff. But this <laughs> idea in the cichlids, I think, was that, you know, old hybridization has basically led to lots of genetic variation in yeah, all populations. They're calling it combinatorial speciation. Huh. And uh, this is what they said. It's that uh, compatible species carry new combinations of very old genes. Selection may favor some of these novelties in new ecological niches. So two species over less time and few generations based on selection become many species. Hmm. Wow. By sorting out these old, these old variants. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you have a bunch of standing variation that, that can cause reproductive isolation, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It would happen a lot quicker. Yeah. Because you don't have to wait. So That's... explain to me, I, so I just read that. I don't get it. Well, I'd have to read that a little bit more closely, but I think the idea is if there's a bunch of old variation in a, in that's inherited Mm -hmm. and still around in say two, let's say many different populations in a lake. Yeah. That's what, this was all based on basically populations within one lake. I don't remember which one. Lake Victoria. Yeah. There you go. So, um, you have like a bunch of ancestral genetic variation which is being maintained in a bunch of fish in a lake. And what they're saying is some fish are in the murky parts of the lake. Some fish are down below, say, feeding on whatever's at the, falling to the bottom of the lake. And so I guess they're saying that those populations at the top of the water column are going to adapt by um, having the same ancestral variants spread there. So let's say it's like Fat, swim, swimming fast and liking clear water. That's going to spread in those populations at the top of the water column. Whereas variants that lead you to like swim slowly and look at the dark a lot and I don't know, do whatever. Those are different variants now, which would spread at the bottom of the lake, right? And so you already have the variation that can change in those two lineages. And so you get rapid change. And then if those variants now lead them to less often make offspring, then they're closer, they're further down the road to being full-on species. Uh, They're not entirely there if they can make babies every once in a while, but they're further down the road. That's the way I like to think about speciation is it's just like, it's it's kind of, um, you don't go from being two members of the same species who can make babies very easily to instantly becoming new species. You have to walk down a road of divergence. And here they're just saying all that variation's already existing. There's lots of it, and it can rapidly change and then contribute to isolation. I think that's what they're saying. I yeah, have to read yeah, it a bit yeah. more. But well, that's, that's kind of the idea. Yeah. It's a lot faster than waiting. Because if you have to wait <laughs> on the order of the mutation rate, it's a long time. Yeah, and you just don't know. Yeah, and most mutations that are rare and new are lost anyway because they're rare. Yeah, so basically the classical form is you have one species, they, and they mate. 
and yep. then there's a mutation of some kind. That, that forms in one part of the range. So like populations west of the Andes versus east of the Andes. They're, they are members of the same species, but then they say a mutation occurs in the west only. And then it spreads there for whatever reason, or it just fixes. And then now they're different. And if that mutation prevents them from, say, talking to each other or making babies, then that could contribute to the process of speciation. And then you need more of these mutations to pop up and eventually seal off the, the process. Takes some time. But I guess if you have a bunch of pre-existing variation, it can go quick. Yeah, cichlids are a great study uh, system. So many species. Yeah. And cool looking, too. Yeah, they're really pretty. I mean, yeah. don't people... Um, you can have them and you can get them at the pet store. Yeah, exactly. There's a bunch of really pretty cichlids in the store. Yeah, and they yeah. change color when they get when their mood changes. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. Like if there's like a friend of mine had them. And oh, okay. so like uh to cuz they got big. I mean they're like, you know, bigger than my hand. Big fish. That's had, a big fish. Yeah, well he had a big tank. But so to <laughs> feed them, you know, he tossed in goldfish. Well, those little goldfish go swimming in there and all of a sudden like, the, you know, this kind of like a grayish fish would just turn red. Whoa. It was really cool. That's cool. And they and those are fish with teeth. Yeah, that's not my gig. Yeah. Fit, cichlids have teeth. They don't, they're not just oh. like, you know, they're not just going to gum you to death. They're going to well, yeah, go after it. There's not a man-sized cichlid, is there? <laughs> Maybe. You, you know, fish, you know, there's like they said, there's always a bigger fish. Yeah. <laughs> that's That's cool. Color change. Wow. So you like biology, too. Oh, uh, no, <laughs> no, no, I'm the sciences. Uh, no, I'm, I, I went the art route. Oh, yeah. I don't know, man. I think there's, there's science and art and there's art and science. But I, but you know, most, I was thinking of this today that most of the people I talk to on this podcast are, are more of a sciencey really kind of a huh, cool. vein, I think. I, th- I think computer so. science was the last guy I talked to about oh, uh, cool. virtual reality. Whoa. Yeah, that's a really good. You should check it uh, out, dude. I'll check it out. Yeah. Conversations is the name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cool, man. So what's going on in the, in um, the field of uh, um, evolutionary biology that's really exciting to you? That's a good question. You ask a lot of really good questions. I'm I'm getting better. <laughs> there is there's a lot going on. I think um Technology has made leaps and bounds. Um, so we, we're at the position now where we can basically answer questions that we couldn't answer 10 years ago because they require a lot of information. So let me give you maybe an example of that. Um, so one question might be, um, what's the genetic basis of adaptation in a fish for instance like in uh the cichlids to do that in the olden days you'd have to do some crosses between two fishes that looked pretty different and then maybe do some these anonymous markers maybe several hundred of them you could you could develop pretty easily markers so so the genome basically is a bunch of a c's t's and g's yeah and one way to develop a bunch of quote, anonymous markers is to just cut the DNA in specific sites and then um, amplify sites of the DNA that are near those cut sites. 
And so this is a way of just chopping up the DNA in lots of places and then developing markers. So you know that when it cuts in this position, you can, say, amplify that and look at it on a gel or, or sequence it. Hmm. So you could do that, but now we're at a stage where basically you can just f- nearly always, unless the genome's really large, you can cut up the DNA as before, but then sequence all those fragments. You didn't have to just focus on some of the fragments. You can just basically sequence everything. And that's through computer modeling? Or? That's through new technology. So that's through new sequencing technologies. So, um, you know, capitalism is good too, right? So it leads to all the development of these great tools, say Illumina Sequencing or other companies where they can basically sequence a human genome really cheaply, you know, for a couple thousand dollars. So this is, this is you st- it's still done the same way? What makes it faster? Uh, well, it's, it's faster because of the technology. Um, it's all... It's kind of complicated, but there's chips involved, and there's potato. lots of synthesis. Synth- <laughs> potato. There's lots of synthesis of these, you know, many fragments. They're sequenced on a plate, and then read. Whereas you kind of had to do it much more. Um, it wasn't done automatically like that. You'd have to do it more intensively in the lab. So it's way faster, and you generate, and it's done on a much larger scale. So. Just imagine having to look at just, uh, say, 300 sites in a fish genome, sequencing a little bit of DNA versus, like, the whole genome. You get a lot more information there because you miss a lot, right, when you when you don't have the entire Because genome. you can only do so much in a lab. Like, yeah. it, like at the university, it's you and maybe an assistant. Right. Yeah. And then you're trying to do 300 of these. Right. Well, that means every day you might get a couple. Yeah, you're doing a lot of hard work. They, yeah. Now you basically, it's it's still a lot of hard, careful work to, you know, put together individuals, extract their DNA, make sure the DNA is of high quality, but that stuff you had to do anyway for the other stuff. But you can just generate a lot more information is what I'm saying. So um, that allows you to then, say, scan the genome and look for where are the genes that have changed or are the most divergent between populations. So you can ask on a very fine scale now... Um, about questions about how change happens. What are the genetic variants? How have they changed? What processes led to that change? Um, and a lot of people are really interested in using this to study speciation, for instance, or you know, responses to climate change. So I think, I, I think the tool has allowed us to ask in much more greater detail and greater clarity how things change. Maybe that's not something to be excited about, though. Right, like that's not like a new idea. That's basically just doing things better. No, that's something. Yeah, that's why. Why? Why wouldn't you be excited about that? Yeah, I guess. I mean, so now you can know more quicker. Yeah, you can know more quicker, have less uncertainty. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and and the costs keep coming down. So it seems like evolutionary biology is well suited to to give more compelling answers to questions. But in terms of new things, I'm not quite sure. I'm always kind of wondering, like, what's new that I want to think about? New studies that you're excited about? Nothing that uh, that you read about? Go, whoa. Well, I, I've i been thinking a lot about geographic ranges. So I talked about this bellflower stuff and, mm-hmm. and sort of where species are found. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity to ask really interesting questions about what's going to happen in the future. So a lot of evolution is backward looking and that's because it's a historical science, just like, you know, astronomy, anthropology, 
all these other historical sciences. You often look backward. But now I think we've developed a framework that works pretty well for doing that. But I think we can also use it to predict the future. If we can say that um, environments are going to change this much in the future, say in northern parts of species ranges, we might make predictions on, well, which populations are going to be able to persist or not. So I think there's some, I think the next 20 to 30 years of people are going to be doing a lot more forward thinking, predictive work. And that, that might be really needed to save biodiversity. You know, if some populations are just so poorly fit to do well in a, in a hot environment, you know, do we abandon them? Do we bring genes from populations that are in hot environments and move them? I think there's a lot of work we can do as evolutionary biologists to help biodiversity in the future. So I think that's, I think you're going to see a lot more of that in the, in the next 20 so years. Is that predictive? Yeah, I think so. I mean, let's say that you um, know that a certain portion of the genome is has a, has a mutation, which is very common in environments that have been hot over the last hundred years, but it's not common in places that have been cold for the last hundred years. Okay. So you have a strong, maybe you have a strong idea that that region of the genome might be beneficial for those organisms in hot environments. Well, if that's true, then populations that maybe harbor that mutation might do better in the face of future warming climates, right? Mm -hmm. So you might, you'd predict looking forward that if we transplanted plants of the, of that have that favorable mutation for hot environments into places which we know are going to warm, maybe the populations will be better off. I don't know. I mean, this is just me riffing, mm -hmm. but I think there's a lot of interesting ecology and evolution questions that, that can be forward looking. Does that make interesting. sense? Yeah. Well, I just never thought of it. I just don't think of, uh, of evolution even as modern, you know, because you are, like you're saying, you're, you're always looking back yep. because it seems like it's when you're looking at evolution, you look at what has happened, not what can happen or will happen, but yeah. it, but based on what has happened, you can look, look forward. Yep. Well, but that's going to take a lot of, the, like you're talking about, a lot of information. A lot of information, yeah. But so, for instance, I know there's some. But, isn't that happening now? I think people are doing this now. I mean, but but it's a but it's new. I think it's a new. I think we have enough um, information now that we can do this well in the oh, future. Oh, I see. But I think you know, there's a bunch of stuff being done for experimental evolution that is like relevant to human health right now. So there's some folks over know. at the University of Idaho who are working on this idea of uh, gene drive. So gene drive is this um, genetic system where a portion of the genome just has a natural transmission advantage and spreads. And so what you can do is kind of hijack that system to maybe combat diseases. So one thing that people are developing, are interested in developing, is um, gene-driving systems in the mosquitoes that harbor malarial parasites. So what you can gene, do... Wait, okay, back up a second. Gene-driving systems... In mosquitoes. So you can introduce a mutation in a mosquito, for instance. Oh, right. Yeah, I've heard about this. Yeah, that leads that will intrinsically spread, but what it might do is cause all of them to be female, for instance. I don't yeah. even I don't know the really details of this, but, but yeah, I know they're they're doing something with that. Too. The idea is you could drive a, a species extinct, maybe, you know, in theory, you could do that really quickly, and then that would lead to no transmission of malarial parasites, right? 
So people are using evolutionary thinking and models to inform what we do for human health too. Wow. Yeah. So it's not just like a bunch of people sitting around talking about what Darwin thought. It's actually like this stuff's relevant to health in many ways. Like people use evolution to understand where diseases come from. Um, you know, you have an Ebola variant spreading in Western Africa. Where did it come from? Is it like the other variants? How is it different? Did it adapt to human cells? I mean, people have asked these questions and come up with really interesting answers to them. So it's, it's definitely not a luxury science. I think a lot of people have the impression that evolution is just this luxury science. Luxury science, like, like um, all, everything's been answered already? Or no, what I mean by that is it's just um, something we, we ask these questions just because we're curious. Oh, you know? oh. I think a lot of I think a lot of people think that. But huh. evolution is just thinking about how change happens over time. So it's relevant to cancer. It's relevant to the spread of human disease. Well, everything changes. So, right. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, sure. I mean, the only thing that's constant in life is change. But not the rate of change. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. I think, I think it's an exciting time. It's just a matter of being around the right people to get excited by new things. I think a lot of us are kind of always thinking like, what do I want to do next? Well, you could do anything, really. It's just a matter of having the opportunity and being around the right people and learning. And so, I don't know. I, I guess I'm giving you an evasive answer here, but I think I, I don't. I don't think yeah. you evaded it. Yeah, I'm always kind of wondering what I want to do next, and I don't know. We'll see. So th- this with the, this plant that you're studying, this is like this is the why study this plant? I mean, what is it about this plant that you hope to gain the larger knowledge about the, the earth or what's happening with evolution. That's funny. You followed up what I had just said with that question, because basically I work on this plant because, um, the expert that works on this plant, Dr. Laura Galloway at the university of Virginia, basically came Aren't up you to me an at a expert meeting. on this now. Well, not as much as her, I would say. Okay. But she came up to me at a meeting and just asked me if I would like to talk to her about some ideas, which then led us to like, develop a proposal together, which we submitted to the National Science Foundation, which got funded. So it's just, in that case, it was she approaching me, us talking, seeing common ground, and then getting excited by it. And so, um, but for me, why I why I wanted to work on it, though, was because it was about explaining why plants either do or do not mate with themselves. And it seems in this system, the only way to really understand it is to use historical information. And that's what, that's really cool because a lot of, a lot of work that I had done in the past was basically trying to understand plant reproductive traits through what's going on in modern environments, right? Like, okay, yeah, plants self in environments where there's not a lot of plant or other plants today. Mm -hmm. But this, this whole study just basically shows that it's historical and stuff you see now in contemporary environments isn't all that informative, which kind of makes a lot of a sense for an evolutionary biologist, right? Like change happens in response to historical environments. Hmm. Nevertheless, I just found it really interesting. So that was great. Um, I'm doing some new stuff, doing experimental evolution, but um, that's just getting off the ground now. Um, so I kind of know what I'm doing. I just kind of, I, but I, I'm always interested in what's the new thing. Like, what do you, what do you want to do next? Like, how do you how do you figure that out? Man, it just so that's what drives me crazy about scientists too. Is that it's always what's next, right? 
And it's like, what's next? Okay, so yeah, I'm studying this, but what's next? You know, what's the, I'm studying, well, I guess what I'm saying is, okay, I'm studying this one thing. I've discovered this, but, sure. you know, there's always the move forward. And that seems like an uh, a difficult thing, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's because you, you never, and then when you have an answer to something, you write a paper, you know, and then, but but by the time, but but then you, you get that paper written, then you're already like, okay, well, what's the next thing? Is that it? Or when do you stop answering the question? I guess is what That's I'm good, getting at. Yeah. I, why, why are people so um, continuing with their curiosity, maybe? I, well, I'm, no, I, I guess, uh, you know, where you talk about uh, evolution and everything, but the, you have a question. You try to find the answer to that question. At what point do you stop trying to answer that? Is that when, or do you just continue? Uh, you kind of come at it from a different angle or like, mm. oh, hey, we've got this idea. Okay, I, I, I'm i just kind of I'm, uh, thinking out loud here. That's fine. Where now that you have this idea, where, so then you write papers because it's always like scientific papers are coming out. It's uh, like, you know, on NPR, like from the journal science or from this journal that. So at what point do you go, okay, we have enough information to send it out to the rest of the academic or scientific field. And then do you keep pursuing that same question that answered that, that you wrote this paper about? Yeah. So I think, so, okay, there's a couple in there. So you said, when do you yeah, was, sort of was, say you're done? It was meandering. Yeah. When do you say you're done with a product and send it away? I think it's when you feel confident in enough in your um, results that you can feedback on the, on the underlying hypotheses and shed light on them. So you can either say, yeah, I got some information. It's probably hypothesis A, not hypothesis B. I'm a little uncertain. I need more on this one thing but it's good enough that you think it contributes to the conversation and moves things forward. That's when I feel good about a paper. Uh, and I'm sure people are different. Um, but, uh, but then how do you then think about the new thing? Yeah. When do you, so like, okay, you send out a paper, do you stop asking like, cause you had a question to write that paper. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, okay, a few questions. Well, sure. Yeah. We go back to your, your plant. Why does it, uh, Self-populate. Why is it self in the north? Yeah. Why? So then you you get information, and then you feel like, okay, we have something to give to the rest of the scientific community who studies this stuff. Yeah. And you send that out. Do you keep asking that question, or do you move on? I after think it the depends papers? on the person. It, I, th- oh. I think if you're still curious, if there are things that you are still curious about, you you don't let them go. Ah. Uh. If other things are, I guess the whole thing here is there's allocations, right? Like there's trade-offs. You can't do everything. So oh. if if you're curious on that thing, you can try to keep it going, but other things might demand your time. And that's probably in the end, people are just making very practical decisions. Like oh. um, I'm interested in this long-standing idea of mine, but there's this really cool thing over here about gene drive, for instance, or whatever. And so people might go do that. Um, I, I don't think, I wonder if people have a developed refined framework for why they make the decisions they do. I think we're just oh, people, yeah, right? Okay. We're just... Uh, there's no scientific reason for why you change that or pursue it. I think people in, in general um, pursue ideas that they think they can answer and that they think are interesting. Scientists. Scientists. And yeah. so if, if they if they satisfy those criteria even loosely, they go for it. And 
and some people who are not me because I'm not a theoretician are, are think, well, I want to, I want to, how does this even work or come up with a new idea? I don't quite know how they go about their work. Um, I'd love to know more, but, um, yeah, I think in the end it's just, you know, it's like you, when you, um, decide what you're going to do in the next year with your time, how do you decide what you're going to do? It's probably like, am I bored of this? Is it, or I'm really excited about this one thing I want to do. I want to play guitar, for instance. Um, I think scientists do the same thing. Just move on as uh, they they will. Yeah, and I, you know, we're just just people. It's hard. I mean, that's the job is hard, actually. Um, you know, we were talking about this because you were you were uh, um, uh, Elise was talking about how you were saying you were really you're getting worn out, you're getting burnt out on on stuff. Yeah, and uh, she was saying, well, this is why you have sabbaticals. Yeah. To, you know, you need to step back and because you're constantly grinding on that thought. I mean, it's to to me, a scientist, somebody who studies something like that, it's like, it's constantly on your mind. Yeah. But is that, but it doesn't, isn't everybody like that though? No, no, I'm not sitting here thinking like, like constantly. I don't have, I'm not in the pursuit of a question, the answer to a question every day. My job is set up. I have like, I go into my work. I do, I have, it's very, it's very linear. Well, not a little stereotyped. I don't know about, but like my day is very regimented. Yeah. Right. So I'm, but I'm not trying to pursue some question that is larger than the sum of its parts even. So like the questions that I have to ask or, or in the news business, there's an answer to. Yeah. Why is this? Okay. But why is, why are you doing this? Why it's always, it's almost always about people. It's not so much about the scientific aspect when you're trying to find something that there is no answer to yet. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Right. Because it's, you don't know where you're going. You're trying to create an answer. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah, that really is hard. hard. Yeah. Where, you know, the, the things that I ask, like, I mean, we're sitting here talking and we don't have the, all the answers. You know, we've been talking about that, how uh, mm-hmm. we just don't have all the answers. But, you know, that's, that's, but that's just conversation. We're just yeah. trying to, you know, we're just sussing it out. But you do have answers to some things. Like, you know, what is uh, evolution? You know, you've sure. got an answer. You have a basic textbook kind of answer sure. to that. Right. Um, but, you know, the, but what you're trying to, I don't sit there and try to think about, oh, right. you know, what's the new forward-looking uh, thing yeah, in, in, in radio technology that's not on my brain. Well, I mean, I the stuff I have to think about isn't that hard. I mean, it's just kind of <laughs> biology. Uh, maybe it's I don't think it's hard because I've kind of been doing it. For yeah, a long you've time. what what thirty years? Oh god, I'm not that old. I mean, forty uh, years? Maybe 15, 20. 15, 20? Yeah. Okay. I mean, jeez, half my life. That's half a... my life now, basically. I've been doing this. Um, but you're. Right, I guess the research enterprise is. You're always constantly. Um, constantly thinking about what's new, what's next, having to learn. And yeah. I can see that is that is tiring. But I also think it's like really invigorating. Yeah, I can see that time. too. But I mean, it, but it is taxing. Yeah, it's taxing. Like if you would like to have free weekends all the time, it might not be the job you want to do. But I think a lot of people can strike a balance. You know, for instance, I think I'm striking a little bit better balance right now um, this year. I've decided to bike more carve out time for my health. Um, 
And yeah, take time off on the weekends a bit more. Um, but it comes in ebbs and flows because if you get excited or there's deadlines, then you got to. Yeah, I can see that. There. I can see how like, oh man, I can, you, especially when you're seeing progress on uh, something that you're trying to get an answer to and you're like, oh man, oh, we're close. Yeah, it's actually, it can be really, you can wake up all the time in the middle of the morning. Uh, well, I mean, living here, Northern Idaho, the summer, I just don't sleep well. I'm up at four every morning. And this summer, I worked a lot. I was actually like up at four and five. Oh, because working. that's when the sun comes up? Yeah, it comes mm-hmm. up and then I'm just awake. Yeah. So now with the falls here and the, the days are shorter, I'm I'm actually sleeping now. It's really nice. <laughs> yeah. But I, I guess I just wasn't sleeping well, so I worked. I actually worked pretty hard this summer, but um, yeah, it ebbs and flows. But I, I don't know. I'm such a... Yeah, I, I guess I look at everyone in society and I just, I think everyone struggles. You know? Oh, well, yeah. at some point. Yeah. I mean, the struggles I'm talking about here, these are like, these are these struggles? I mean, the well, fact that I can't sleep and it's hard. Big head, or... big brain struggles, man. These are, because the, the thing with that yeah. being a scientist is you're using your mind. That's not what everybody does, man. I mean, the, I've been that person. I've been the checker at Albertsons. I have there's not a, too, yeah. there's not a lot of brain work in that. I mean, there is. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I don't want to. I'm not de, uh, de, 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 denigrating. Denigrating. I want to say degenerating. <laughs> <laughs> That's not. I'm not saying that. Either. Yeah, I know. What you I'm mean. not trying to denigrate anyone. I'm just saying that in the the thought processes that go through being a checker at a grocery store, it is there. There are answers, right? To yeah. everything like, oh, well, like, okay, what is the number that I have to put into the computer to weigh your bananas? Or, you know, I, oh, I want to return something. Well, there's a process for yeah, that. Yeah. You know, it doesn't take, you're not thinking abstractly about, gee, I wonder how we could do this better. How could we make the, the, the grocery checkout line go faster or to move smoother? You know, that's not really your, what you're thinking about. Most people are not thinking Actually, about that. So I worked as a checker. Um, and in a lot of jobs like that. And I was thinking about that stuff, actually. I was yeah. like, how can we do this better? And I think a lot of people think that on that job, actually. Maybe, or maybe they don't. But I think there's an opportunity to be like, well, how, how do we make this more efficient? How do we do our job better? And, um, you know, and there's things that come up all the time in that job where you don't know the answer. Like, we're missing a pallet of lettuce. Where <laughs> is the pallet, pa- the pallet of lettuce? Yeah, sure. Well, then you just go through, like, reject, you know, crossing things off the list. Like yeah. when I find, when I lose my keys in the house all the time, I always just immediately go to the scientific method. I, I don't like wander around the house haphazardly. I go to one place, I thoroughly look, I cross it off the list and I'm not perfect, but you know, you, you try to be as rigorous as possible. So I think there's room for the scientific method actually everywhere. Oh yeah. 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 I, I think that it's applied without people really knowing yeah, that that's what they're that's applying. That's definitely it. it. I think it's great. Like plumbing, any, I mean, not that I would want to fix plumbing. Problems. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll let somebody else do plumbing. Yeah. I'll let anybody else do plumbing. Yeah. I tightened it so it wouldn't leak. It leaks more. Yeah. Fuck you pipe. <laughs> God. Do you have plumbing issues right now? No, no, okay, that's no. Good. But that's the but that's why I let our friend Jerry do it. Oh, he's he's great. Yeah, Jerry's a shout out to Jerry. Hey, Jerry. What's yeah, up? motorcycling somewhere. That crazy see, guy. See you at the cocaine's party. Yeah, <laughs> it's coming up. I usually see him once a year, and it's really good. We, t- we talk a lot at that party. Yeah, uh, he's a cool guy. Yeah, Jerry. He's uh, I don't know. He's got to be 
close to He's 70. close to 70 now. Yeah. yeah, been retired for a few years, retired plumber from the University of Idaho. Awesome. Put guy. in like 30-some years being a plumber. He's, yeah, he's, he's, he's seen a lot. And he's got like a master's degree in education. Yeah. He's a, he's a, I went camping with him once. It was the first time I ever took my little puppy out, well, 10 years ago. We went down to Mackey Bar on the Salmon River, and we saw a black bear on that trip, but we just got to see some really cool country together, and I spent time with him. I mean, this guy's like way more put together and, you know, manly than I am. Like, I think there was a tree down on the road, and then we have his like really great rig. He stops, gets his chain out, this huge chain, and he's got a system. He, he says, well, we just need to break this tree, so he hooks up the chain to the back of his, his little rig there, and puts it around the tree and just kind of pulls it. I would go out there with like an axe or something and just hack at it. <laughs> that just shows you how ill-equipped I am <laughs> to live in Idaho. But And then we broke it up in a matter of little time and we processed it and just went on our way. I mean, he's just this guy who has all this, um, yeah, just experience. Yeah. And now it's us. Oh Look, dude, God. you're a college professor, man. Yeah, but that there are trade-offs. <laughs> yeah. I learned the 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 chain technique from him, but there's so many other things I have no idea. I know, but I mean, when you think about it, though, I mean, uh, I hate that phrase, by the way. When when you you think think about it, because it it implies you're not thinking about it usually. When you put brain power to the, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) little pet peeve. Okay, so when you are trying to process the information that is coming to you, (laughs) and uh, but you uh, people look up to you. You know, there's college students look up up to you. You are a professor. So when you were in college, the people teaching you, you kind of saw them on the... They were great. Yeah. They they, were great. uh, Well, not all of them, trust me. Um, Yeah. There's some really shitty, poor-ass teachers out there that are in colleges that are just there for whatever reason, but yet cannot teach their way out of a paper bag. Maybe they're having a tough semester. No. No. There's some really... (laughs) bad teachers everybody knows everybody knows who they are you know okay so anyway moving on but i mean you're in that position right and it's because of this that your struggles to get to the position that you're in thinking about evolution and biology and you like doing it i do like doing how it. how the hell did you do that well no very few people have a job they like man yeah i don't well so when I was, I'm glad you brought up college and like where I was when I was younger, because it's really good to think back to that, right? So when I was in college, um, I started working in a biology lab and I just basically begged my way into this lab because I thought I had this moment in my first year where I, w- I thought, you know, I'm just going to do the easiest thing possible and it's going to be sort of a path of least resistance, yeah. right? Yeah. And and that was okay. I think I was trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. That's really hard. Jesus. That takes years. Yeah, I'm still. we're still figuring it out. Yeah. But I remember I decided that I went back to my past, like being outside all the time, you know, thinking about biology in a really unstructured way. I was like, I want to, I actually want to think about these things. So I begged my way into a lab. And then you're in the lab environment. And then I was just hooked. Because you're surrounded by people who are asking questions and giving each other critical feedback. It's not personal. It's just about the process. And people are really intellectually honest. And that is so difficult. I, mean, I, I think you said it before, trying to be intellectually honest, and that is really hard. I completely agree. Because I try... 
I don't want to bring politics into it. Yeah. Just I don't want to talk about politics, but that's where that is the part of my life where I try really hard to be intellectually honest because we all come to politics with a certain bias or to Certainly. things in life with a certain bias Certainly. and to try to look at these things, take a step back and just try to look at them uh, on the facts as they are or what is happening now without trying to bring across how it is I feel about it. Yeah, It's like, how, how's my brain telling me that this how should I process this instead of how should I feel about this? Because a lot of politics is about feelings, not so much about and emotions. And yeah. instead of just uh, thinking about it and being intellectually honest, how do you do that? How do you stay intellectually honest? How do you become intellectually well, honest? I think it's like anything. You got to learn how to do it by watching others. You need models. Yeah. And I think um, that's what I'm saying. Like I choose Heidi Klum. <laughs> yeah, she's nice. She's tall. I like taller girls in general. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As evidenced by your wife. She's way taller than me. Yeah. But uh, I think you need a good model because people need to learn. And I think at the University of Chicago, I was in this great lab, two labs, and I was surrounded by just amazing grad students and postdocs who were, they were each doing their own project. I saw them struggle. I saw people crying at their lab bench. I saw that. I saw people um, having tough times. Uh, I saw experiments fail. But that's part, that's just what, what happens. And so then you, you see people deal with these things, these difficulties, but then also the joys, right? People are talking about, here's the data, I made this progress, I'm writing this paper, would you read it? And I saw people who were willing to like spend time on me, actually, this lowly undergrad. Like, I was trying pretty hard, but I had no clue what was going on. And um, just to see people, it's like a, t- it's a team effort, um, to just be a good, just learn about the world. I just found that to be amazing. I found it to be like almost noble. I hate to say that word. It seemed noble to me to like try to learn about the world around you. Well, that is a noble pursuit. Yeah. I don't know. I thought that was, thought that was worth spending time on. So I'm just glad I'm still doing it. I hope I can still do it right for the next 10. I hope I'm healthy for the next 10, 20 years because I'd like to keep doing it. And I like being around we're constantly around new people who are excited. That's like the best renewable resource we have is the youth of the world, you know, to be around them every year. It's amazing. I, I think it's just, uh, I might, people who know me at work will probably think, well, it doesn't seem like you're amazed by it, Jeremiah, right? Because I'm just doing my thing. But I, I'm actually blown away by it every year. What is it about it that blows you away? People um, come into college, much like I did, and they're just really excited to get involved. Right? They have a lot to learn, just like everybody else. They maybe have they're farther down on the curve, but they're willing to try and say, "Hey, I want to do a project." And you can see them learn. And um, I think students, when they go through these difficulties of practicing in science, they learn pretty quickly if it's something they really want to do for the long term or not. But it's just kind of fun to help people figure that out, right? Wherever they go, if they're not going to do science, they're still going to use a scientific method if they go do something else in their mm-hmm. life. Um, so, yeah, I mean, don't you feel like when you were, when you were younger, um, you kind of tackled things with a bit more vigor? I don't know. 
tackled them with a bit more vigor. Um, yeah, I had more energy for sure. Is that where you're getting at? I don't know. Yeah. Just like my, yeah. the pursuit of it, I, I did with more enthusiasm. Yeah, more excitement or enthusiasm, I think. I think there's the excitement of youth that. Yeah, yeah. It's undeniable. Yeah, I would give you that. I don't. Yeah, I still, I, it's like, you know, I went trying to think of what, what did I get excited about of my job recently? That's, I mean, because it's, the, the, what I do is very, there's a lot of the same, but different every day. It's uh, that there's a clock and it's, you know, it's the same clock. Yeah. And, but the information that you gain, that's what I like. That's if, if I looked at it, if I thought about what it is about my job that, that, keeps me doing it is that it's it's different and it's yeah and it's not like okay again going back to the checker thing it's pretty much the same you know you get the same things coming through the people are different that was the fun part for me it's because you talk to a person you kind of create a conversation but you try to keep that conversation going to the next person that was always a challenge uh try to make up little games like that but in my job there's always new information that you're getting um every day I don't know how that, I don't know where I get, if that even answered the question, but the, just no. the, how to become, how to stay excited at work. It's difficult. Yeah. It's difficult. Well, I mean, I agree. I mean, I think there are, there are, there have been times that have been very difficult for me. And, uh, um, <clears throat> yeah, they just pass. But you got to stay curious. I think you just got to stay curious. Yeah. But, you know, it's funny, you know, um, I, Right now, I'm not doing, I'm not studying like the, in my life, I like to do a lot of different things. I'm, what I've noticed in my life is that I am not someone who sits there like, I just have this one thing and I do it until the nth degree. You know, I, I rarely have things like that. Um, it's like, I have many different pursuits. Yeah. Uh, so right now I'm definitely studying like mindfulness, I'm studying uh, physical uh, and mental health stuff, and uh, I'm studying Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> yeah, that's kind I of fun. fucking love that game. And then um, I'm also studying music, but on a but not music as like a, like play an instrument, but more like a, a inst- music studying music as a theory play playing it and discovering new things about that music or artists. Um, I'm doing a, like right now I'm doing a jazz show. So that's on Saturday mornings at 10 on K jam, the jazz jam of the blues. That's K jam jazz.org. Yeah. Uh, you can stream it. Um, yeah, cool. just fun Saturday morning jazz. Just do it. And it's just, it's fun. Yeah. It's fun for me to do that. So yeah. So I'm you're pl- saying I'm, you've always had your, your hands on many pots, many pots going at one yes. time. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I look back on it like, yeah, I've always had this kind of pursuit. It's rare that I have like one thing that I just yeah. zero in on. I think I have in the past, but you get excited about it. And you kind of right. do it and then you go, oh, all right, okay, I'm done with that. <laughs> Next thing. Yeah, I guess I've had, I think I juggle multiple things. I play hockey a lot, um, which takes up a lot of my time in the winter, which is long. Here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, when do you start playing? Uh, a Soon. couple weeks. I think uh, second week of October goes you to play October through March. March, the end of March. Jeez, it's awesome. November, December, January, February. That's half the year. Yeah, it's awesome. So I do that, and then yeah, I, I guess I 
I have been rather. I don't have as many pots as you going. Um, but that's kind of who I, I've always been a little bit more, um, I'm going to say obsessive compulsive. So you could view like this narrow, this narrow pursuit of a few questions as being, you know, curiosity driven, but there, there could be a little shred of pathology there too. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, I definitely have some OCD tendencies. My wife will tell you that. So, um, I'm trying to, yeah, just stay healthy basically. Yeah. Where yeah, I can see that. I, I can I can see how people in sciences because you have to it takes so much energy to pursue a question that there is no answer to. And then to you have to be kind of obsessed by that question, you know, because to stay on top of that yeah. science. Because that's long. Okay, let's let, so when you're talking about like writing a paper, from the time that you are discovering something new. Mm-hmm. To the time that you might write a paper, is that is there years, years? For me, it's like three to five years. From the initial um, deciding you're going to do something to publishing it, it can be often three to five years. That it's a while. Yeah, I can see that. Like you have to have a little of the. Well, I don't want to say a little of OCD because that that you know. Sure, there's other. I'm probably I'm probably using the wrong have words, to, but you have to. But there has to be a lot of tenacity. Yeah, I mean. To pursue something, I, I mean, agree. Because I mean, what, I've never done something like that. I've never done something that took me three to five years to write, to to discover, and then to publish something on it. But the conversations project has been. It's it was a seed in your mind. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. it took a while. But yeah, it it became a thing. Yeah, and I used the scientific method. I did a bunch <laughs> of things that were crap, and I was like, okay. And I mean, I seriously, I bet I've done a dozen podcasts that just didn't go anywhere yeah. because I listened, I did it and it was fun to do, but then I listened to him like, I don't, that's not, that's not it. Yeah. This can go in that bin too. I think (laughs) (laughs) this particular one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not the, I'm not the most uh, engaging person. Um, No, this is great, man. Don't, don't, don't uh, sell yourself short. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that, you know, this, this podcast is all about stories, experiences and knowledge and you've got, We've done we've done all of those things. Yeah. But this is also a project that I I just want to keep doing it. This is a, this it. is a long term project because it's also kind of uh, um, I don't know if it's egotistical, but I do this for it's like be, getting a free education. Mm-hmm. I mean, I learn things that, on this podcast every time. You know, like uh, talk to uh, Matt Brain. We were talking about. Um, uh, virtual reality? No, no, no. We well, that was one too. But uh, Matt is an architect, and he oh, teaches cool. at the U of I. Teaches architecture, and how his idea of architecture is anything where you change the natural environment to suit your own needs, basically. So basically, if you put a couple of rocks together in order to to like we were talking about shoring up a porch, that's architecture to him. Yeah, you know, if you did it purposefully, that's architecture that could be that that minimal or it could be as grand as you know the empire state building or something like that that's architecture too yeah it's changing the way you view the world yeah yeah so i'm gaining i gain knowledge from this all the time that's what's great and today it's like man talking you know evolution and genomes and species speciation or whatever the hell the word is <laughs> and speciation and uh you know uh, talking about uh, different areas where plants grow and they geography is cool 
Yeah. The geog- geography is cool. Yeah, I guess I I really like learning new things too. It's really fun to be surrounded by curious people. Yeah. Like, you know, you have this show where you're always getting, um, you're always interacting with someone who's new, who's going to push you, you're going to learn new things. I just think that's really fun. That's that's another cool thing about what makes science fun is you're, you are, at the undergraduate level, you're surrounded by these really interested, really smart, young people who are going to just kill it in the world, right? They're just going to go out and just be amazing. And then you have, like, the smaller lab group, which are people who are really excited about the little tiny things that, that you think are really exciting, and they're, they've committed their life to it in, in, for some period of time. Mm-hmm. It's just like, how can it not be fun? <laughs> and, and, some pe- and, and a lot of students, are just, they're all talented in different ways, right? I mean, some of them are just, they'll teach. I always learn something from all my students, nearly every day. So, wow. It's like they pay me to do this. <laughs> For now. Yeah. <laughs> That's ending soon, Jeremiah. It might. You never know. That's true. Well, yeah. You never it, know. You, you really don't. You don't. And, and then, so you, let's, uh, let's, let's take a look at, uh, like, higher education mm-hmm. is in trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, just uh, the model itself has to change, I think, mm-hmm. because you, right now people how we can do this, I don't know, that kids are going in debt for the rest of your lives, their lives. It's really hard. If I can use an example, like your wife is someone, you'll probably be paying that off for... A while more, yeah. A a while more. I mean, it's a lot of debt. Mm -hmm. But again, you get a lot of education and a lot of quality education. It's not uh, poor education, but then, you know, what I read the other day, I got to do, somebody had put on... Uh, I think it was a looking on imager mm-hmm. and they, the guy said, uh, someone guy, uh, that, uh, I went to college to get a good education so I could get a job to pay off my good education. <laughs> you know, um, it, where is science going to put that? Is there, Oh, uh, I think, sci- I think we need to look where the problems are. Um, I don't know if science is the problem. No, I'm, what I'm saying is what, maybe there's a scientific oh, I see. way to solve the problem or where where was, yeah. where does science, is science part of the problem? Because, well, yeah. or, I, mean, I think science could help. I think science, this is just me speaking here. This yeah. is me as a person speaking. I, I, I speak as a person clear. all the time. Okay. So my way to approach that would be to look at um, costs have changed over time. So I would maybe look, I'd plot out the costs um, say average tuition for students on the y-axis and on the x-axis, I would then try to figure out, well, what other things have changed, have in- also increased to predict that increase in tuition? Now, I don't know the answers to these questions, but I would predict that it's, um, I don't know what it would be actually, but you could just be very straightforward about it and say, which things have gotten more expensive in, in universities? I don't know what it is. I know from Books. the... L- from the little bit that I've done, I, I know a little bit actually, is that I think a lot of the the cost increases are, um, it's not because we're paying faculty a lot more. Administrative. Uh, that's what I hear people say. Uh, and yeah, I've been hearing people say that for a long time. Yeah, yeah, and I'd have to look a little bit more into that, but it seems to me like the growth is there. And the fact of the matter is universities are businesses. They need to be administrative. Yeah, the University of Washington, that's a town. Yeah. That's its own town. I mean, how many people are there, let's say, 
every day from eight to five. Yeah. Just think of like that. There's tens of thousands of people there. Yeah. Every day. Yeah. I mean, I think they have to be administrated, but I think that, that has been, it seems like that's a source of some of the increase. And I'm not saying that's the only, but yeah. So if, you know, I would think, how do we bring those costs down? But I don't know. I don't know how people. I don't either. And they, you know, and I bet students would have a better understanding of this because they're, you know, actually footing the bill. But I do know that a lot of cost too is that the students are keeping asking to foot the bill more for things that go on mm. at the university. Like there's a student rec fee. There's a now there's a fee just to keep the the college newspaper going. Mm. Um, there's you know you name the fee and it's it gets tacked on. That's not the cost of tuition. Right. That's the cost of going to school, and the cost of you being a student at that institution. And so we keep, you know, like uh, there's it keeps being not. I don't know if it's pushed on, but I know that like uh, to keep this to keep the, the newspaper. This is a real thing. The Daily Evergreen. They were the the university said, okay, we're going to cut funding for the Daily Evergreen. Okay, just uh, the, the, the I don't know how it was getting funded. Maybe through student something or other. But they but they had a some kind of student referendum of some kind, and said, okay, can we from here on out, every student will pay five dollars a semester to keep the student newspaper yeah. going. Now, I think that's a worthy investment. But, I agree. Um, but again, that's another $5 that has to go on to students. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that the Chronicle of Higher Ed and a lot of other sources of information on this have really analyzed what the what the sources of the increase are. But um, it is interesting that it keeps going up. Yeah. And dramatically. Yeah, the rate's high. Yeah. I think, what, okay, this is back in 1988. I paid $800 a semester, and I wouldn't buy a book because it cost 75 bucks. You said how much a semester did you pay? $888. Wow. That's for a... You're old. Yeah, in 1988. Wow. That's how, that's how I remember that. Yeah, that was 31 years ago. Yeah. Which is crazy to think that the late 80s was 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. I think University of Chicago when I was there, undergrad. I think it was twenty eight thousand a year, which seemed like a lot of money now, but I think it's almost double. That's that a lot. Now. That's still a lot. Yeah, I think twenty eight thousand dollars a, a year. Lot, yeah, but you know, if that does that include room and board, or is that? I just... think it did. Yeah, I mean, these numbers were kind of funny because, you know, I didn't actually pay that amount. I mean, I had some support, but. It's like you're, it's almost like you're, uh, um, uh, borrowing a job. You have to borrow money, you know, Yeah. to live. But I do think, um, yeah, so clearly costs are a problem, but I think it's definitely still true that students learn viable skills. I do think though, one thing that students need to need to know going into college is that you get out what you put in. Oh yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, so without I, th- a doubt. I would like, um, I would like that if, if students kind of, um, I think students do know that actually, but I think it's pretty self-evident. You get you get out of things what you put in, and so you can make college be this transformative experience, right? Pretty easily, or yeah. it could be, you not challenging yourself. Yeah, and it do, and it depends on how much you want to put into it. Yeah, you know, because um, there is every opportunity. 
to do definitely whatever you want at a university. I mean, you could you could do so many things then not go to school and still learn a lot. I mean, like not take formal classes because there's so much going on. Yeah, yeah. You could work for the student newspaper. I mean, you, anybody can go and, and work for the student newspaper. You just need to apply. Um, you don't have to be a comm major or anything. Yeah. Just, you know, can you write a sentence? <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're good. Uh, no, it's not that easy, but, you know. I'm sure there's competition. Yeah. Selections, I might say. Yeah. You could be a walk-on football player. You can. Yeah. You know. Until the first hit. And then, <laughs> right. then you're not a walk-off football player. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the quality institutions are cost money, and they always have. Um, it's, uh, it, yeah, yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah, but uh, Washington State University is, a, I think, overall a decent place. I think. Uh, I don't know if there are fundamental, real core problems at the university that are challenging its viability for the future. I don't know what they are. Maybe um, I, need, I need to talk to the university president. What I'm saying is if there are like problems that I fundamental problems that are make like the people aren't happy, the workers aren't happy, the, the, the institution's going to fail. It's uh, for some, whatever reason that yeah. I can't see. I know it's having some financial problems, but that seems to be getting better. Yeah. It seems like it is. But, um, you know, whatever that is, I'm not in the know. Maybe would you think that the president would come and talk to me? I think you should ask him. Thank you. Yeah. He might. Yeah. I'll just use the, I'm, I'm Tom Cocaine. I'll use, I'll use the, you know, the, use my celebrity. There you go. <laughs> Say that. That just sounds so egotistical. I'll use my celebrity. <laughs> you might surprise yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it seems like things are getting better. I mean, um, living in the academic wing of the university, I see the value of a university as in teaching students changing the way they see the world, giving them skills, um, making them learn about the world, you know? That's I think that's why people are at in school. Yeah. And so at times it seems like the emphasis on sports uh, is a bit large, but I think I'm just one of many people saying this. Yeah. And so... Um, but then there's the other. Yeah. yeah. And I've, I've gone to football games at WSU and I've seen what goes on there and I've seen... If that's your prism that where where you see the value of the university, there's value there. It's just a very different value than me, right? So I can see why we'd want sports, but it seems like the Pac-12 and what we do here is kind of it's pretty intense. Like, do we need that big of a program? Um, I guess we do. Apparently, yeah. It brings in a lot of money, man. A lot of money. Hmm. And you know about the golden rule. What's the golden rule? Uh, get the fuck out. I don't know. <laughs> no, the golden rule, the person with the gold makes the rules. Oh, okay. So, I mean. That's true. It, I mean, the university has a lot of things because of, you know, the football program. It's on TV. TV money is lots of money. Yeah, that's lots lot, of there's money. There's a lot more zeros on those things. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm sure they're getting, well, and, but also, yeah, I don't know. Okay, fuck that. <laughs> It's like, I'm not saying fight the, the them, just like right. move on. Let's from, move on. Yeah, because go, I'll go down a rabbit hole and say something I probably shouldn't say. And, you know, we probably both will. Yeah, I'm being very tight-lipped right now. Yeah, like, you know, 
So, okay, let's, 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 so what about science in general? Okay. The, is, what, what is, what's your, what's the future look like for science? I think the future is bright. I think the way we tackle problems is to be rational. Um, I mean, science occurs in a context, right? It's not in a vacuum. That's undeniable. Ignoring that vacuum right now, or that context right now, um, we have some real big challenges coming ahead of us. Uh, emerging diseases, climate change, food security. These are not going to be solved by um, being irrational. Science is part of the solution, but we also need the politics to follow. So I think both those things need to be implemented well. Um, but we can't... Science is part of the solution. I think it's a big part of it. Um, the politics, I don't really want to get into, but I feel like it's really important that we make space for people to be critical about the world and honest about what they see and then to um, try to improve our lives. If we're not doing that, then I worry that the great promise of science might be somewhat constrained by the rest of the context, if you know what I mean. Do you know what I mean? No. <laughs> the rest of the context? Uh, just politics. You know, uh, I think uh. politics is... Um, it's pretty crazy right now out there. Well, yeah. Okay, let's. There's, okay, I, I I was actually thinking like, okay, that was pretty good to end on. But you know, what about the one that they they moved the USDA from? Oh, they, they moved it to Kansas. I to think, Kansas, right? yeah. And lost so many people. They're saying that uh, they are saying there's a report on NPR mm. about how it's going. The, the USDA was seen as one of the top in the world for scientific research and information. By this move, they've lost so many people and so much brain drain, it's going to be years before they ever gain that back. I I did see those articles and I read some of them about the brain drain, but, excuse me, my question is, um, what was the motivation to move the USD to Kansas? That's a good question. Um, I didn't see that in the articles I had read and I could have paid more attention, but I'm curious what they were. I think they wanted to be made closer to stakeholders because, yeah. you know, a lot of agriculture is in the center of the U.S. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. But again, there's always trade-offs. So I would have to sit down and be like, what are the pros in moving this thing out of D.C. to Kansas versus not? And I, I didn't see that full reckoning. I'm sure that full reckoning was done. I hope it was done. I'm sure it was done. Um, it would be interesting to see how they, how they made the decision in the end. Um. They go the questions again. <laughs> My question would be... Yeah, sorry. No, nothing to be sorry about, yeah. man. Science. <laughs> USDA moving. I did... I did... Uh, yeah, the USDA is pretty cool. Yeah, I, I hope... I just hope there's a space for science. I think there will be. It's undeniable. It's a great engine to understand the world. We just need to be open to it, I think. Yeah, we wouldn't have, you know... Anything without science, really. Yeah, and a lot of luck. I think we got lucky early on. Yeah? I think so. I think a lot of... I mean, you've, have you heard these crazy theories for why societies um, destroy themselves or why there's no advanced societies? And 
in the universe. I think they call it the Fermi paradox. So, okay, just a little bit of a side glance here. Okay, sure. So, okay, we are an advanced society. It's really unlikely for advanced societies to develop in the universe, right? Do you, we can agree on that. Sure. It's rare. Yeah. Uh, but the universe is very large, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. There are so many um, galaxies, there's so many solar systems, there's so many planets. It's, it's The chances of there being other intelligent life out there, out there are actually pretty good. Even though it appearing in any one solar system is, t- is tiny, if you kind of compound across all these different places, it's, there's probably something out there. And this is the Fermi paradox. I think Fermi basically said to some people who said that, well, where, where, where are they? Where, if, if there's a bunch of other societies out there that are advanced, well, where are they? And there's this really cool idea that basically societies drive themselves extinct. When they get enough technology and capacity, they destroy themselves. <clears throat> and maybe that's one reason we don't see so many advanced societies, and maybe perhaps we're also on that path right right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just, we're, we're talking I about totally thousands of years, millions of years, yeah. maybe. Even. Well, I could see that now. And it's, uh, sure. and you know, we are cyborgs, every one of us. I yeah. certainly am. Um, yeah, I mean, every one of us has a, Elon Musk says that, that, you know, we're all cyborgs. If you have a cell phone in your pocket, yeah, you yeah. have a, you know, you have a computer that aids you. Yeah, so I guess going back to the original statement that maybe we're lucky, I think humans as a species certainly got lucky. They sort of evaded extinction at the hand of other organisms or their own catastrophes when they weren't so super common, when we were pretty rare. And then we drove a bunch of other species extinct, mastered the environment, got pretty lucky. All those things involved some luck. Uh, And then now we're numerically very abundant and we have a lot of skills and technology. And I think we're kind of our own worst enemy at this point. I would say. Yeah. I, I would mean, say. So I think I think we need to remember that. You know, we're having to save the planet from us. Oh, certainly. Yeah. I mean, to save the whales. Well, save the whales from what? Save yeah. the whales from us. Yeah, I wouldn't say, say save the planet from us. I'd just save ourselves from us. I think the planet would go on if we drove ourselves extinct just fine, even if it was really oh, bad. Yeah, I see. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, it will become a moon. Right. Or, you know, right. A, a planet with, you know, will be the next Neptune. But I think, yeah, we're our own worst enemy. But we can, you know, there's so many of us, right? That's well, the same argument. Even if the chances of someone being amazing are small, there's so many of us. You know, the, the other day, that, uh, you know, this, uh, oh, what is her name? Uh, Greta Thunberg, the, the mm-hmm. girl, the mm-hmm. 16-year-old girl who's talking activist. about climate, climate activist. Yeah. One person. Yeah. That's, that's not only that, but that's a young person. Yeah, she's changed S- a lot. Started a revolution for people her age. I mean, really, has really put focus on, on the climate change. For especially students, we started a, a walkout among students yeah. worldwide. That was cool. One person. Yeah. Change. I feel like I need to evolve. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah. Well, this podcast definitely. Is, this our conversation evolved quite a bit. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for having me on. It was yeah, Jeremiah. Thanks for coming in. We've, we've talked about this a little bit and finally, finally, finally made it happen. Yeah, I'm glad. Um, just fun to talk. 
I probably won't listen to this because I don't think I can hear myself. Yeah. I think I watched one video of myself for about five minutes and then it was just too much. So Yeah. I do it for a living, so I hear myself <laughs> all the time. Lucky yeah, but you're me. but you're a professional at this. Like Yeah. I mean I've been doing I mean literally been doing this over half my life now. Yeah. It's impressive. Yeah, I'm still doing it. <laughs> all right. Thanks again, Jeremy. Yeah, thanks. It was a lot of fun. Yep, there you go. Dr. Jeremiah Bush. I mean, just the the brain power uh, to think about millions of years of evolution or, you know, tens of thousands of years or whatever time is. We made up time. So, I mean, just all of that space and time to see a change in things and then how that, that mode of thinking had changed with um, Darwin and how you went from thinking, okay, everything existed and it's always been the same. And then he comes along and says, no, you know what? Things change, man. Uh, it's a fascinating idea. Uh, thanks again, Dr. Jeremiah Bush, for coming in. And you know what? If you're going out for a beer, check out Moscow Brewing Company and thank you for sponsoring uh, Conversations Moscow Brewing. Do appreciate you. Uh, that's all I got. Have a great one and uh, catch you next time on Conversations. I'm Tom Cocaine. Over and out.